Hello, what is up? I have Axel Knight on my podcast today. He has been my neighbor for as long as I can remember, and he is also a filmmaker, an actor, and would you say theater type play director type yeah, stuff? Yeah, sure. Awesome. So I really appreciate you being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Strad. All right, so the first thing I wanted to talk about is you recently graduated college, and I wanted to know, like, how does that feel? It's good. It hasn't really set in yet because, you know, the for me, the summer is still going. All my friends who are still in school are you know, still in summer and everything. So we haven't had that kind of experience of, you know, everyone going back to school and me not yet, but that's coming like next couple weeks. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Um, but no, it's, it's really, it's really nice to be able to just kind of sit back and have the time to not worry about stressing about classes and stuff kind of busying up my schedule. So that's, that's been really nice to think about. Yeah, I agree. I was actually, I was curious now that you don't have school anymore, you don't have those classes and stuff. Because you are a filmmaker and that's like your main thing, right? So do you feel like not having those classes on top of everything has freed up a lot of time for you to just fully focus on your creative projects? Yeah, definitely. Because when you're you're juggling doing that, it's it you, you can only really focus so much time on each thing. And you can do both. I always tell people, you know, if you're in school and you're trying to make movies, go for it. You can still do it. But obviously, it's it's just not going to be able to be as good as it would be if you could focus on one or the other because you are juggling your time, and time is quality in the end. So um, I, I feel very good to be able to have the time now to really focus and really get in depth on my projects and be able to hopefully make something better than I've ever made before. Interesting. How do, how do you feel like you handled the balance of having your own side projects and then also trying to do good in school? I, I work well with deadlines, um, which is a very nice way of saying uh, that I, I cram everything at the last minute for the most part. <laughs> but uh, yeah, for me, it's, it's very much based on like, okay, what is the most immediate concern in, in my life? If I have a school project coming up, then I will kind of put po- projects on hold so that I can finish that and get that going really well. Um, and then if I'm not doing that, then it kind of then goes to whatever the current you know, labor of love is because the projects are kind of the, uh, the passion and the fun. And I'm always happy to do those at any time of the day. But you know, when it, when it comes down to it and you're like, okay, I have this thing I'm working on that I'm really enjoying, but I also have a paper due (laughs) the, the balance becomes how, how soon is the paper due? (laughs) If it's due in two days, then it's like, okay, I can't do this project. Your brain just kind of corrects itself and goes, yeah, yeah, we really got to do this project. We got to stop working on the project. But if it's like two weeks away, then you're, you're like, okay, we, we can probably put the, put the project off uh, or the, uh, the essay off. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's about finding the, finding a way to set yourself those deadlines and goals really. Interesting. And, what about when, because you did like some film, were you majoring in film in college? I know you were. Like, I actually majored in theater. Um, yeah. So it's, it's funny because the, you know, my back and forth on theater and film uh, for a long story short was kind of that I, I started in film when I was in middle school. I was just interested in you know making little movies with my friends, uh, but there was no film program in high school. So I switched over and I did theater in high school. Mm-hmm theater for four years but still kind of had in the back of my head I want to do film um so right out of high school I went to LA to do acting for film found that it was not as fun as I thought it would be <laughs> and I came back going like okay I gotta refocus my maybe I'm I'm into theater wait why was it not as fun as you thought it would be um 
it, it was mainly the kind of the, the competitive aspect and then the lack of creative control for me. Um, I'm very passionate about the stories that I tell and I, it was frustrating to see so many films that I had worked on, um, you know, that, that I, I felt like I was giving this, this particular performance, doing this particular character and telling this particular story. But then of course, as, as I know well now, you know, what happens on a set, what happens in a script doesn't always end up making the final cut because you've got to make creative decisions and the director wants their vision told. And that doesn't always perfectly align with what the actor wants, which is understandable. Um, but for me, it, it became kind of frustrating to not be a part of that final vision and to just, you know, you do your project, you you work on something and you're passionate about it, then you wait for four months, you don't hear anything while they're editing it, and uh, then it comes out and it's like they've, they've cut what you felt were very important moments in your character's arc, uh, they've cut certain things and like acting beats that you took that you thought like showed secret kind of inner workings of who you were and so you feel like the the product that you get is not what you gave and that can be kind of hard on a young actor who's not very experienced doesn't get the process very well um so i i didn't like that i liked the fact that with theater you can really you know what you give is what the audience sees because you're on stage they're watching you and obviously the the kind of stuff that the director goes through where they're sculpting their vision happens in the rehearsal process so you're you're both on the same page together whereas if you know if i was able to have a conversation with every director who cut a film i would probably be able to understand why they made the cuts they did in the editing room and it would all make sense to me but because you don't have those conversations it's usually just the director and the editor um you're just kind of like why'd they cut that i thought that was good so is it kind of like when you were acting in movies you're i don't for lack of a better word, you kind of like this doll where you did what they asked. And in your head, you had like a vision of what you thought was good and stuff. But in the end, you don't really get to be a part of that decision. Yeah, exactly. And and what I realized much later was that it's just kind of the issue of having a director's brain and coming into it as an actor. And people oh. work in different ways. Some people don't really want to be a part of the creative process. They want to show up. They want to work. They want to give a great performance. And then they go home and it's all good. Um, but for me, because even back then as an actor, I had this director brain kind of going, I did want to be a part of that. I wanted to be a part of the, the telling of the story and seeing a story that I didn't know I was telling come out is weird for that aspect. But do you, do you think there's maybe like this director brain part of you developed because like as an actor, you started to realize you wanted more control? Absolutely. By having that? Cause I know in your most recent or your biggest project you're working on right now, you, Act, you had a pretty big role as an actor in it, but you were also the director, right? I did, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it was it was really kind of coming back to theater that kind of made me realize that. Because when I went back to, um, you know, I, after L.A., I went to, um, I went to UNLV to, to college and started as a theater major with the focus on acting. And I kind of found that I didn't really like that that much either. And I'm like, okay, what's wrong with me? This is my passion. I love this. <laughs> Is it, you know, what is it? And as I started doing it more and getting, you know, I started figuring out, oh, I, I want to be in charge. That's the problem. And I'm not in charge. And I always kind of say that there's like, there's kind of two types of directors. And I think there's, um, 
you know, there's the people that want to be in charge of everybody else because they want to be the boss of everybody. And then there's also the people who I, I feel like I fit more in with where you want to be in charge because you just don't want anyone in charge of you. You know, I couldn't care less who's under me because, like, to me, it's you're all a part of the the project together and there's no real power dynamic. But I can't stand it when someone else is telling me how to tell my story, you know? Yeah. It just, it makes, because I get so many ideas, I get so many insights onto, like, okay, what what can we do with this world, with these characters? How can we explore this? And if you're, if you're an actor, your job isn't really to, uh, on most projects, it's not to give those thoughts and to, yeah. you're not expected to do that. And I've worked with a lot of directors as an actor who are very much not a fan of that, you know, where I'll, I'll be like, Ooh, what, it might be kind of cool to, to do that. And they're like, cool. Yep. Maybe, maybe not. You know, <laughs> cause they're very much, it's not yeah. a, it's not a back and forth for many directors, for many directors. It's very much like I do the directing, you do the acting, which is, you know, totally fair. Um, everybody works differently. I, I do like to kind of involve, my actors in in the process, at least in the creation of the characters, a little bit more because I've been on that side. I know how fun it is to be a part of that process. But you know, everybody directs differently, and um, yeah, for for me, it, it became a process of realizing that you know the kind of actor who has to be part of that process isn't going to be a great actor to work with. Um, but directing is out there, and I started trying it in theater. Loved it. Um, and then the world shut down during the pandemic and theater died overnight. And I said, oh, maybe we should take another look at film. And oh, int- Wait, so yeah. do you think if COVID never happened, you might yeah, I might not have theater? I might be, yeah. There's oh, no way to know. Yeah, the pandemic was big for me in terms of kind of reshaping what happened. Because I wrote the feature script during the pandemic. That was the first thing I did in film was write a feature, which is kind of insane <laughs> and weird. Yeah. Um, and then when things started cooling down a bit, uh, I started doing short films because I was like, I wrote a feature, but I can't just with no experience make a feature film. So I, I I was like, okay, I have this. I'll put this in my back pocket. I'll work on it when I'm ready, but let's get some training first. So I did, I did, I think three shorts before we entered pre-production. Was this your, the feature you wrote, was it the first feature script you ever wrote in your life? Kind of. I, (laughs) yes, for, for all intents and purposes, the, um, the way I actually got my start in film and theater in general was in middle school. I I was super into the Percy Jackson books. I don't know if mm. you've you've read them, but um, they were they were favorites of mine. And the film version of the first book came out, and I felt that it was uh, it took a lot of creative liberties with source material that did not fit the book and didn't represent what I loved about the book. Um, so it wasn't very accurate. There were a lot of changes made. And I, as a angry, emotional middle schooler, decided <laughs> to, to, take, to the, uh, take to the road and write a script of my own Damn. that would be more, more like the book. And started making that with my friends with little, you know, little camcorders and no experience in filming Oh, you actually tried filming? Yeah, we, we filmed about like 15 to 20% of it. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I mean, it was... Like I said, it was a bunch of middle schoolers <laughs> into high school because I think we stopped filming around like little after freshman year of high school. But gotcha. yeah, we had no idea what we were doing. Um, so once we got to the scenes of like, we needed monsters, we needed CGI, um, we needed all this like gigantic <laughs> blockbuster yeah, budget. We were like, oh, f- <laughs> how are we going to do this? You know? <laughs> um, but the, uh, 
in the meantime, you know, while we were filming it, we were having a lot of fun. And I went from that process from somebody who was like, I want to write books or I want to be an English teacher or something to like, oh, this this acting thing is kind of fun. Um, and it's because I was directing it at the time too, but I wasn't even thinking about that part. I was just thinking like, oh, somebody needs to direct it, so I'll do it. But mm-hmm. acting was what I thought was the fun part at the time. And looking back, I kind of realized, no, it was the directing that was the fun part. I just didn't put that together. Interesting. Do you think that doing that process in like middle school freshman year mm-hmm. helped in the writing of your current feature film? Definitely. Yeah, because I knew it was possible. If I could write oh, you know, something that was 70 pages as a... 13 year old, but I could definitely it do is it. It's pretty as a intimidating like, to think of writing that much. Yeah, and it's it's long, but I think, and I tell this to people all the time is that yeah, features are hard. I'm not going to even begin to talk to you about like, like, oh, anyone can do a feature. But the thing is, is anyone can if you have the spirit to take it on. Um, it's not a matter of budget, it's a matter of willpower. And drive um, because we shot Life Almost Gone, which is the, the feature that I just yeah. did. We shot that on like pretty much nothing. It was it was you know pennies and dimes, um, but it's it's a good film because we put in the work and we worked our asses off. I don't know if I can no, swear it, it. Swear <laughs> okay. it's fun. Um, but yeah, it, so I think the the main thing is that you just can't treat it like a feature because that's where it starts to intimidate you is when you start thinking about this massive you know, two hour thing. And I think our, our assembly cut was about, was close to two and a half hours. So it was a long movie. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's shorter now, thankfully. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, uh, the, the main thing that you have to do is if you have any experience writing short films or anything like that, take it in chunks, you know, think about the film in smaller pieces. So when I was writing, I was just thinking like, okay, get to the quarter point. I know what I want for that quarter point of the story. So that's just 25 pages. That's not that hard. You know, that's a little longer than your average short film, but it's standard. Then you get there and you're on a roll. You've already written 25 pages. You're like, okay, cool. Now I need to get to the midpoint. I want this to happen at the midpoint. Because hopefully before you start writing, you've you've kind of fleshed out your whole story, what you want to like do. Like you have all the main beginning, beats. Yeah, all the main beats. Done. So you figure out which beats you want to be your, your quarter point, your midpoint, and then your three quarters point. And then you're ending, obviously. And you just, you set yourself, okay, I want it to be 100 pages long. So you say, by t- page 25, I need to be at that quarter point. And you just, you start writing. And um, sometimes you have days where you, you don't write and you're like, ah, oh, man, I didn't write today. But it's okay. You just, you try again tomorrow. And the script gets written. And then once you enter production, it's the same thing. You You don't, you know, plan the entire film out, you know, well well in advance obviously you want to have as much stuff done as possible you want to have all your pro, uh, your costume design your production design that kind of thing um and if you get your entire shot list done for the entire film before filming then that's brilliant power to you we we did not have the stamina for that so for us it was very much a um it was a matter of like we would do our shot list for the week before each week so we do what we'd like meet up after our Saturday shoot and plan our shot lists for that week until Saturday. And you know, we knew what we were going to be filming. So we got, get our shot list. And one good thing about kind of designing your shots on the go is that I really like doing these kind of like mirror shots, like throwback kind of things where you've got, um, you know, you'll set up a shot that looks a certain way early in the film. Then later in the film, you kind of replicate that. You oh, mirror. That's cool. So like, you know, without giving anything away, there's like a shot of, 
two characters' hands kind of coming together and one character, like, pulling the other one up. So it's a big moment of, like, you can do this. Like, let me literally physically pull you off the ground. And then much later in the film, that exact shot is mirrored with two different characters. The one pulling the other character up has, like, gone through this big arc and learned something. So it's, it's like... I don't know if symbolism is the right word, but it's it's showing growth. It's by kind of, it seems like one of those things where, like, after you would watch it again, yeah, you would see that exactly. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. So because you're actively filming and you're saying like, okay, we've already shot all this, we're able to now look at it and be like, hey, how cool would it be if we tried to do that shot again here and we you know we recreated that moment and because we filmed the film mostly chronologically as well um which is not super common um but we we thought it was important to kind of break the film up into sections i think we did in three because there's all the stuff that's kind of like before the characters set out on the road so we did all real quick because i want to ask you a lot about this like just the filming process in general but real quick maybe give a quick synopsis of what the movie is about um yeah so the film's called life almost gone it's uh, i always kind of like to um joke about it it's like it's a nice coming of age teen drama um about a a you know closeted gay character um dealing with who she is and trying to find herself during the apocalypse and that's always the little <laughs> spin on it that's kind of different um so yeah it's it, the the world is um ending basically every day 50 percent of all life is having so you you wake up and there's you know 50 percent gone and then you wake up the next day and there's another 50% gone and it's counting down to zero, basically. So there's nothing coming to get you. There's no villain to defeat. And that's kind of what I wanted to tell because you know, it was during the COVID, it was during the pandemic. And I kind of wanted to, def- I had a lot of feelings about that, obviously, as I'm sure all of us did. And I wanted to create a film that dealt with this, this kind of impending doom that we all felt that we can't run. Uh, we can't run from. There's just not much you can do. So having some kind of zombie threat or aliens or something like that would kind of take away from what the real feeling was. So we're like, if you're just, if you just disappear and there's nothing to blame, there's nothing to, you know, pray to, there's nothing to figure out. Yeah. How do people act? Because it's not going to be your typical apocalypse film where there's this like survival aspect. It's more like just live every day like it's your last kind of thing. And um, that's really what the story's about, is is a girl who's, you know, gone her whole life kind of living with this look towards the future and not living in the present, and now she's forced with the end of the future. And what Whoa. is she going to do with Dude, this I'm time? I'm chills. That, like, connects <laughs> pretty well, actually. Thank I you. Like that. Um, I had a question. Oh, so I feel like an apocalypse movie... And like sci-fi in general is a lot harder to make, especially on a lower budget, just because mm-hmm. of, you know, kind of what, like your Percy Jackson scenario where like yeah. there's CGI, there's all this cool effects and stuff. So how did you feel thinking like, okay, I'm going to make my first feature film. It's going to be kind of maybe not sci-fi-ish, but apocalyptic, which yeah. is a pretty, you know, high budget usually type of sure. category. How'd you go into that? What's well, a lot of it is, I would say you should start as big as you possibly can. Imagine you're working with billions of dollars and um, then work downwards. Think, okay, I can't do that. So how can I do this, this dream? And I'm, I'm a huge fan of sci-fi fantasy horror, that kind of stuff. I, I love my genre films. Um, so it was always kind of a, a thing that I wanted to do was to have some elements of that in here. So 
what I kind of did was I thought, okay, this could be something that would be incredibly hard to film if I wanted to shoot it in a certain way, if I wanted to have certain moments happen. You know, there was there was early in the process a kind of a visual in my head of like you seeing a midnight happen in a crowded place where you see like just hundreds of people just into ash, like just oh, kind of like, um, yeah, and that would have been awesome, <laughs> but no way in hell could I film yeah. that, you know? So um, really... I find it's it's always very cool to see what can people do with limitations. And I find some of the most creative choices ever made on film have been through practical limitations. Um, the shark in Jaws is a great one in that the shark just kind of it didn't work all the time. The shark model that they had, it was clumsy, it you know, kept <laughs> sinking, and they just were having lots of problems with it. So they chose to just kind of not show the shark until like the 75% mark. Mm-hmm. And the, the movie is so scary because you never see the shark. You, know, you just see that fin. You see the, the POV underwater swimming up and you, you never see it. And then the second you see it, obviously you, you've had so much hype that it is exciting and it's great and everything. But a little bit of that fear dies the minute you see the shark. Um, thankfully, the film is a phenomenal film and it's already grabbed you. So you're not, you're not liking the film any less once you've seen the shark. But that fear and that, you know, that like, oh God, when is it going to happen is because of the imagination. You, you're filling in the blanks in your head. So I've, I've tried to kind of ascribe to that and, and do that as often as possible. I did an alien movie recently in which we were like, okay, we want there to be a spaceship, but how the, how are we going to do that? So we just, we had a big old circular, um, uh, lighting shade, like one of those things you put to, to diffuse light. And we had a giant light up in, on a ridge of a mountain that we were filming outdoors on. And so we put the light up there and we just had this screen and we just had this circular shade just block out the moon. So you've got like, you've got a still shot of a character on the ground. She's looking up into the sky and then a giant circular shadow like covers up the entire. And your brain is telling you exactly what you're seeing. But we did that for less than you know, free. We already have the shade. So that was a totally free, really cool. And then you also have the, the benefit of like, if the spaceship didn't look how the audience wanted, if they didn't like how it looked, you get rid of all that because the spaceship looks exactly how you want it to look because you're imagining it. And we're not going to say anything to correct that. We're not going to show you anything to correct that. It it can be exactly how you want it to look. Um, That's such an interesting principle because I, at first, it seems kind of counterintuitive because a lot of people think, well, the more resources I have to do something, the more creative I can be because I can just do whatever I want. But then there's also like this creativity that kind of like what you're saying, that comes with having the limitations because then you're forced to think and wit- like see things that you probably wouldn't see if you could just easily get the exactly. resources. Exactly. Imagine if they made Jaws today, you know, with, yeah. with today's budget. Yeah. You'd see the shark, shark in the first scene and you just wouldn't care that much. Um, yeah. I think that's why I remember hearing someone say, you know, have you seen the Quiet Place movies? Yeah. They said, like, they thought both were good, but the first one they really liked because in the first one, all you knew was that these creatures existed, but you didn't know, like, if you could kill them or, like, what they could really do. But then, like, at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, like, they shoot it with a shotgun. And then the second movie, it's still good, but now you know, like, these things aren't invincible, so it's scary. Yeah, mystery is terrifying. It's another thing that makes um, the Heath Ledger's Joker and the Dark Knight so terrifying is the, all of his fake stories about you know how he got these scars about his history you have no idea what this character's backstory is because 
any one of these individual stories could be the truth, or none of them could be. He could be just completely lying out of his ass the entire film. Um, And honestly, I I feel like that's the most realistic thing, is that we never hear actually how he gets the scars. So having this Enigma character who's clearly got a lot of backstory, but we don't get to know what it is, is fascinating. Do you think part of it, kind of like what you're saying with the spaceship, it's like the audience getting to kind of put their own interpretation on it yeah exactly choose, maybe choose which backstory they want to believe yeah because and i see this so often with um you know there's there's a lot of kind of toxicity about fandoms right now in uh, terms of films is that especially with the internet and with these echo chambers of people talking about what they want out of something um we're seeing so much criticism over choices lately and the main thing is that no movie is really going to be as good as your imagination at first because if you convince yourself this is what something looks like or this is going to be how something happens and that's what you're living with in your brain for a long period of time then that's the right way even if it's not actually the right way that becomes your correct and everything else is wrong Uh, so you know i see it happen with star wars all the time um where you know, every single new Star Wars thing that comes out, other than maybe The Mandalorian, gets a lot of hate because people go in with these expectations. They go in with these, this is how I think um, Obi-Wan Kenobi should be on Tatooine, or this is how I think the, the sequels should be. <clears throat> um, and then it's not, and then people, in, rather than thinking deeply like, okay, it's different from how I wanted, but is it still good? Um I'm, I'm a big defender of The Last Jedi, which a lot of people hated. And when I first saw it, I didn't like it. I, I went and I watched it and I was like, what is this? This is totally wrong. This is like they've, they've taken everything from Seven that they set up and they just threw it all away. And I just sat back and I thought about it. I'm like, you know what? Actually, they answered everything in Seven. They just didn't, they did it in a really clever way in a way that I was not expecting. And people say that, oh, subverting expectations, but it's not really, it's, it's more like, we get what you wanted, but what's the, actually the correct way? Not the fan service way that would have been fun to see, but what's the, the truthful, best-for-the-story way of answering these questions? Um, and, you know, I don't know if you've seen the film, but, like, you know, deciding that Luke wasn't going to be this OP Superman-like character who just shows up and saves the day, which is what I'm sure all of us wanted, is what I kind of wanted, because um, I love Luke. He's awesome. Um, but they gave us depressed hermit Luke, who's like literally struggling with depression, with with this, um, uh, you know, inferior kind of feelings of, um, of uh, that, that he's not the hero everybody thinks he is. And that's such a fascinating story to tell. Mm-hmm. You know, it's such a it's a, it's a new direction. It's a more compelling direction because if Luke shows up and just immediately is awesome, then where's the story? It's over in five seconds because you have Luke, what else needs to happen? Um, but giving him that, that depression storyline is, is it's so sad as an audience to see and it, and it really hits you. And as you're like, I don't like this because you don't want to see your hero like that, but it is the better choice story wise. So if we could just take that away from, from our brains, (laughs) that, that, (laughs) imagination part of the you know, obviously you never want to take away imagination but the the expectation i guess is more more the thing and and just accept things as they come in and really judge them for the quality of them rather than for what we wanted i think the world would be a better place for 
that creative aspect. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I, I, I feel that in myself a lot. I'm a sucker for rom-coms, right? Yeah, sure. Have you seen 500 Days of Summer? I haven't yet. I, okay. It's on my list, yeah. Okay, well, essentially, I don't want to spoil it, but there's basically mm-hmm. one way I want it to end, right? So right. I'm like expecting it to end that way, kind of like what you were saying. Mm-hmm. And then when it didn't end the way I wanted it to, I was like, oh, damn. Like, you yeah. know, I feel it, you know, because sure. I get invested in these characters and stuff. Yeah. But then, like, as I think, I kind of try to do what you were saying. Like, I try to think about it. Mm-hmm. And I, in hindsight, I realized if it ended the way I wanted it to, the actual message that the story is trying to get across just wouldn't come across. Exactly. So I guess, yeah, I see the value in trying to see what the story is actually trying to tell and whether mm-hmm. what the way they told it actually worked or not. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's, it's something that I, I dealt with a lot on my film as well because my film, um, I'm not going to spoil anything big, but this is something I don't feel is, um, you know, a huge spoiler. It's, it's the idea that um, the nature of the apocalypse and what is going on um, with the, you know, 50% of life disappearing every day um, is never answered. What, why is it happening? No one knows. So that's something that may irk people when they see it. They, they may go into this thinking there's going to be some kind of resolution to that aspect. And I feel that there's resolutions to everything else, to, you know, um, the, the character's stories and you know, who's, who's surviving this, who's not. We find out, you know, all of that. But the overall question that the characters are asking, which is what's happening to us, what's going on, why is this happening? We, the audience, know as much as they do, and that's how it stays. Because to me, it's not about that. You know, if, if you walk away from the film and your your main complaint is like, why didn't they tell us why everybody was disappearing? Then, like, I understand that gripe, but you kind of missed the point. It's because the point isn't the apocalypse. The point is what the apocalypse does to people and yeah. how it feels. Because I could ask the same question about COVID. Why did COVID happen? No one has an answer for that. Stuff just happens sometimes and it sucks and it's awful and you have to deal with it. And you can go, you know, you can bend over backwards trying to say, oh, it happened because of this bat that pe- someone, but none of it really matters. Yeah. What matters is that it's here and it's happening. And I feel like knowing, like in the case of your movie, knowing afterwards would kind of take away from all the other stuff because then you yeah. kind of just be focusing on that. Exactly. And then it becomes it becomes so much more sci-fi and so much mm. more kind of, and, and mm. while yes, I love sci-fi, my favorite sci-fi stories are the stories that use sci-fi as a device to tell a human mm. story. You know, um, I don't like it when it's sci-fi for the sake of aliens and cool CGI and stuff like that. Cause it's fun, but it doesn't stick with you in the way that a move, a human story that uses elements of, the supernatural, the unreal. Um, I don't know if you've seen Arrival, but Arrival I'm is not. It's on my list. My God, it's so good. It's um, it was my first introduction to Denis Villeneuve, who's uh, my favorite director. He's the guy who did Blade Runner twenty forty nine and Dune and uh, Sicario, Prisoners, a bunch, yeah. bunch of incredible films. But uh, Arrival was my first of his, and it's uh, it's an alien invasion movie, but it's so different from any other you know, War of the Worlds type thing that you've ever seen because it's deeply philosophical it's all um based on human versus alien intelligence and how we can kind of come together and and talk to each other the whole, really the this isn't a spoiler or anything but the movie is about 
a <clears throat> scient a linguist scientist trying to figure out how to decrypt and decode the alien language so that they can communicate. That's that's like the plot of the film. There's no oh god, the end of the world, you know. Oh, wow. But because of this idea, it's really about her and about this character of this scientist and what her journey is and so yeah, it's and and that's that's what I love and for me the story that I wanted to tell with my film was a story about about a girl, like I said earlier, who who spends her entire life looking towards the future, setting up plans for her college, for her um, her career, for her job, if, and and never living right now. And what happens when that future you've been living your entire life thinking like, okay, I'm not having fun right now, but it's it's gonna get better. What if that is cut off suddenly? What do you do? Damn. Um, Dude, you're like me. I really want to see because, like, I feel like I fit that character in some sense. A lot of people I, do. I do think a lot about the future yeah. and, like, sacrifice the now for the future. So it's, it's kind of interesting. I I know that you said that in your head you have an idea of, like, what the apocalypse caused it and, like, you yeah. plan on, like, not sharing it because of the reasons you were saying. Correct. And I'm not going to ask you what it was, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. Do you, first off, do you feel like having that idea in your head kind of helped you write it in some sense and second off do you feel like the effect you want the audience to get out of the story is kind of hard for you to get out of it because you know in your head <laughs> what the I mean, it's it's always puzzle. hard for me to keep secrets like that but um but it's important to me that nobody know because obviously yeah. I, I know exactly what's going on yes but um the the thing that i find is that as much as people might want to know you lose a lot of the movie if you know. So it's it's easy to keep this secret because you're denying the audience something. And you know, if, if it was just a secret for secret's sake, if I was just yeah. doing the, you know, the Kubrick 2001 a Space Odyssey thing, um, of course now he he actually has a very similar thing for why his film ends the way it does, and he wants people to fill in the blanks themselves as well. Um, so that's not really a great example, but it's, uh, yeah, for me, if it was just me being a dick and me just saying like, I just want to have this secret cause, cause secrets, um, then it would be harder to keep, no, but yeah. because I'm keeping it for the audience, because I want them to, to theorize for themselves. If, if that's where you want to go and you want to tell yourself it does matter to you, um, then come up with the theory like all the characters in the movies do because the, the characters in the movie all all develop their own theories and um, some of them are actually pretty close to what's happening none of them are quite what's going on but some of them are close some of them are not and it was really interesting for me to try to put my head uh, into these characters and think like based on their upbringings based on their characterization what would they think is going on and um and try to remove myself from the equation as much as possible. But, you know, I find it's it's hard for any writer to completely stay out of their character. So there's <clears> elements of me and everybody. But in general, I I really enjoy writing characters who are different from me. Um, and trying to find, like, either people in my life or people that I've... In movies that I, I'm like, okay, this... this person is is an enigma and i like this this type of human and kind of trying to replicate them and there's there's a couple people in this movie who are based loosely around real people i know um you know, the, the main girl is is very much kind of 
loosely based off of my brother um, because it's, you know, it's a brother sister story in the end. Um, and this was kind of a, I was writing it when uh, my little brother had freshly gone off to college and I was kind of feeling a lot of the older brother um, protective and hoping the little brother does okay in the world kind of as I was writing it. And so um, the relationship between the, the two leads, which are the brother and sister is very much based on, me and my brother's dynamic. Um, yeah. I, I remember one time, I think it was you that told me this, mm-hmm. where when r- trying to write different characters, a lot of times new writers have trouble making them sound different. Like yes. they all sound the same. Yeah. And I remember you telling me that. And I was trying to actively, because I tried writing like a short script once. And yeah. I was trying to actively figure out ways to make them sound different. How do you do that? Uh, I, I, like I said, I kind of base them on real people because while it's really hard to start from scratch and to say, okay, this is this new character that I know. Um, it's very easy for, if you have a best friend, you know, for you to say, oh, I know how this best friend of mine would say this. I know how my brother would, would get across this feeling. Um, so you know what you, you know, the, the gist of, um, I guess the, the essence of what you want them to say. If you want them to, this is their big hero moment and they have to make the, the monologue about, you know, going on the road then the way I deliver that speech versus the way my brother or my best friend would give that speech are totally different. So if I think to myself, okay, how would, how would Nick <laughs> phrase this? How would he do that? Um, when it's people that you know really well, it's easier than you would think. Do you ever try secretly like slipping in scenes when talking to these people and like see what they would actually say? Um, not really, because it's, it's also never, it's never a perfect, like, it's never a perfect representation. Yeah. I, I go out of my way to make sure that like, it's either mixings of two people or it's a person, but then they're like this when, when it comes to this. So there's, there's no person in any film of mine that's just like, this is my friend or this is, you know, but there, but I take, it's more like I'm taking elements from people that I know in helping craft unique characters. So there's, um, there's a character named Emma uh, in the story and there's another character named Sonia in the story. And Emma's this kind of wise pothead kind of character. (laughs) Like I always say it's kind of the equivalent in this. It's weird because it's a modern story, but it's the equivalent of like the Shakespearean clown. Um, because the, the clown and Shakespeare plays are always like, they're always cracking jokes. They're always using like really dirty humor and they're always, very much comic relief and yet they're usually the wisest person in the entire play um because you'll have these little moments where it's like oh you're not actually a dumbass you're you're paying attention you're just not taking anything seriously i've always loved that character so emma is is a supporting character but she is kind of that in this story um but then there's also sonia who's the love interest and she's this very kind of um i guess on the outwards appearance kind of abrasive kind of um kind of cold um but she's one of those people where it's like she has dealt with a lot of shit in her life and she has gone through a lot and she's closed off all of the all of her walls and she has a very warm very caring interior but she just doesn't let people in anymore um and so both of those separate characters have elements of um my ex who was helping me make the film and everything and and worked on it through like through to now basically We're, we're still very good friends um and but it's like different parts of my ex basically like there's there's the the part of them that 
um, does have trouble letting people in. I, I had to, when, when I was becoming friends with them and um, getting to know them, I had to kind of wear down some of those walls. And I remember what that was like in, in getting to know them and um, understanding them. So putting that into Sonia, putting the, the sense of humor and the charisma and the, the wise but can't take anything seriously into Emma. And so it's, you, you take aspects of people and you put those into these characters. Does your ex know that? Yeah. Yeah. They, like I said, they were on set almost every day. Yeah. And um, yeah, I would not be telling this if it was a big secret, if I felt like <laughs> they wouldn't want anybody yeah. to know, but um, yeah, they're, they're very involved in the project and we, we, you know, we talk all the time. So, well, speaking of like getting people on set, cause mm-hmm. you let, you let me thankfully like uh, help out on, I think like two different shoots. Yeah. And I found it really interesting and very impressive because I would go and, like, this is something you started yourself. You know, there's no, like, company backing you or anything. And you have all these different people that are helping you to film this film. Yeah. And basically, I'm just curious, how do you get so many people to help you with such a big project when the in- when you're not able to provide any, like, financial right. incentives? Or it's tough. It's tough. you got to have people who trust you. Um, <clears throat> for some reason, they trust me, I guess. <laughs> um, but... The main thing I think is the promise of the result, and I think that's that's really what it is for all of us. Is um, what I did with most people is um, at least like the, the bigger the um, you know the, the designers, the the director of photography, the editor is you sell them on the script, you sell them on the story. Um, so you know I, I sent them the script, they read it, and um, a lot of them felt very personally connected to it. It's it's a very um, it's a very sad story. It's a very uh, moving story, I hope, for p- people. Um, and many of the people who read the script were were very um, connected to it and felt that it was kind of answering a part of them that wasn't that hadn't been answered by a film yet. Um, because we we've all got a lot of raw kind of undealt with grief and um, and. Uh, insecurity and anxiety about the world that we're living in right now. Um, and you know, everybody's drawn to different parts of the story, but, um, I think that the main thing was, yeah, was the, the love of the story and wanting to tell the story. And, uh, another big incentive for, for a lot of people was this is a feature and people my age don't make features. You know, <laughs> um, we're, we're, you know, I, I have another friend who, who just took on his own and he's, he's done a feature too, which is, fantastic and i think they're about to start editing but um it's really not like before me and him i had never known anyone at college who had even tried really to to make a feature film so it's a big deal when when you get on board a feature no matter what level of the production you are and i think that for a lot of people it was definitely appealing to say like how cool would it be to put my name on a on a feature film and to have have that be my work um so that was that was a part of it. Um, is it tough? Because I know I don't know too much, but I'm assuming yeah. a lot of these big contract or big budget movies mm-hmm. that are like sponsored by companies and stuff, they have contracts with the people they hire, especially the actors. Yeah. Was it scary having actors that you fully just gotta trust will stick with you through the whole process? Because like if your main actor yeah. leaves halfway through, like definitely you can't do anything. Right? I I had them sign contracts and stuff, but it, it was, you know, it, there's no lawyer involved. Yeah. It's they can still walk out and I don't know what I'd be able to do. Um so it's it's one of those things where it's um it is definitely scary, but that's also why it's important to really like know who you're hiring and um 
and we had some we had some issues um not with any like you know flaking or anything like that thank goodness but um you know our, our original dp who shot the first act of the film basically um just kind of once once we got out into the desert because a lot of the film takes place kind of on the road in the desert um he just kind of was was not having fun out there in the desert it was and it's a lot of grueling hours in the heat and the there's bugs it's it's a taxing environment it's hard um and he just he, he wasn't really having a lot of fun on it and and with something that's so much a labor of love and so much um you know, so much of this is you have to be there because you're loving it. It it was just not for him. Um, so he was he was very kind to kind of promote his typical first AC, who I didn't know very well at the time, and has since become my best friend in the world. So that's super fun to become the DP, and uh, and me and him finished the film, and and they both did phenomenal work. Um, so I, I would say it's about maybe 15% the original DP's work and then the rest is is Ren um who came on board after that and me and him you know we 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 totally understand it we never want anyone to think anything weird of like the original DP because it it was taxing taxing work um it, it was not a matter of willpower at all it's a lot of people cannot handle this kind of stuff and the, the stuff that ren and i did was insane to be honest you know we were we were filming in july in vegas in the desert uh in like 115 degree weather um aren't the hours insane too yeah i mean we, we tried our best to keep them fairly um fairly short because of the weather but yeah we would have five six hour days out there um just in yeah in the heat trying to stay cool trying not having a budget to keep everyone in tents and then you know so it was it was a tough shoot um it was a lot of fun for me and ren in the sense that like we're crazy and we enjoyed the challenge and everything but um but there were some hard days It, it, it was a tough thing to do and it was kind of one of those things going going back to an earlier thing of like you know how do you write these gigantic films when you don't have much of a budget? Um, part of the reason that I did so much of the film in the desert was cost because, you know, if you're doing a film set in a house or set in interior locations, you have to get those houses. You have to get those interior. You got to spend a bunch on production design. You have to make sure that you have a family who's willing to, supply you with their house for days and days and days on end without having you leave that's that's a lot to ask of anybody there's a chance like halfway through they stopped exactly so that would be awful so i was like i don't want to worry about any of that so we have a house in the film but we shot everything we need from that house in three days and we were done we were out of there um but most of the film is set in the desert because the desert isn't going to kick you out. You know, you're out there. You got <laughs> yeah. what you, you need. Know, you don't need any production design. So it was cheap as hell to make because we were in the desert. But obviously at what cost? Did you write the script already thinking like this is going to be in the desert because of that? Yeah, reason? definitely. Um, yeah. And it, it was it was a thing where this is kind of it's a it's a road movie. It's it's a story of a journey. In, internally but also externally these people are going from from point a to point b and a lot is going wrong on the way um so 
yeah, we, we, we always knew it was going to be a desert film and, and I did warn people when they signed on, but there's a diff, there's a difference between saying like, <laughs> oh, cool, desert film. That sounds fun. And then you get there on your first day and you're like, oh my God, it's so hot. It's so unbearable to be here. How did you manage to, I guess, raise people's spirits in those moments and keep them motivated? I think it was it was mainly a, a matter of having those angles of this scene and accomplishing what the scene means. Um, because thankfully, like I said, the the film meant a lot to uh, meant a lot to a lot of people um, in various ways. And telling each person's story, there, there's very little fluff in the film, so every scene is important. Um, and I think that everybody was very driven to to tell the story and to be there. But for me, it was mainly just a, a thing of, like, I have to be having fun. You know, yes, it's hot. It's hard. But, like, so is hiking sometimes. <laughs> and you still have fun doing it. So for me, trying to keep that positive attitude and just, like, yeah, we're all sweating, but we're making a movie, guys. This is so cool. Like, we're, you know, we're making a full-length feature film. We're all out here in the middle of the desert where a lot of films are, you know, doing little. Yeah. Um, it seems like know. in the moment, like they might forget, like when you're yeah. thinking just you're burning hot, you're sweating, like you might forget what you're doing this for. Exactly. And you just reminded them, which. Yeah. And it's, and it's exciting to film in the desert because it's, it's something where like, obviously we suffered for it, but not a lot of people are making films set in the desert. You know, you see things like, um, you know, you see stuff like Dune and, um, and how gorgeous that film is and how different it is because usually you have interior films. You have films where like the most extravagant and otherworldly you get is like a park. I don't know. <laughs> so um, working on a film that feels big, that feels like you've got this scale. You've got Ren with a drone flying around getting these gorgeous aerial shots of you, you know, walking through the desert it feels like you're a part of something big. Um, even though it's, you know, a tiny low budget indie film, it's just, you feel like you're, you're making a Lord of the Rings movie or you're, you're, you're doing something massive. And that's, and you got, there are like, are you show me some of like the sceneries? Like you got to visit like really nice and pretty places. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wasn't there like a Canyon or something? Yeah. Like yeah. There's some, some gorgeous locations we went to. We, um, we, we got very lucky in that, um, during the pandemic, they kind of lowered <clears> a lot of restrictions on where people could film because of, um, I think mainly because of like YouTube vloggers because originally there was like a thing on you can't bring high-end camera equipment you can't shoot film out here um, but a lot of YouTube vloggers who don't qualify as filmmakers were out there doing like here's my vlog at the Red Rock Canyon or here's my vlog at Yellowstone National Park and filmmakers uh, started like you know writing complaints of like they have super high-end mm. cameras that they're filming with why can they do their little vlogs and we can't make our little movies? And they didn't really have any answer for that. So they lowered a lot of the uh, the restrictions. Um, so now, obviously, like, if you're, like, a commercial film, if you're Warner Brothers or Disney or something like that, you still got to get a bunch of permits and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, for us, we, we, it just happened to coincide right with when we needed it. So we did film most of the, most of the film um, on a little patch of desert that was not any national park or anything like that but um we we got a in some of the montage sequences of walking around we got to go to red rock and, and oh, do wow. some stuff out there and um we did a little bit in in a kind of like um 
we did some in Death Valley, which was super cool. We went to the dunes out there. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we, we went to some really, really gorgeous places. Yeah. So, okay, so we see how you try to keep the crew motivated during this. Mm-hmm. But you, it must have been, like, a very taxing process, just the whole movie, because, you know, since it's an indie film, you're not solely just being the director. You're acting in it. Yeah. You're having to get all these people. You always have that constant stress of, like, maybe people might drop out. How did you personally keep yourself motivated the whole time? And were there any, like, low points where you were close to being, like, Maybe just I should snapping. just give up. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was hard. It's it's very tough. Um, I had a lot of really good people supporting me, which helped me a lot. Um, I had some, you know, there would be um, some really really great moments throughout the process where, like, you know, after rehearsal, we would go and get food and we just kind of de stress and talk. Um, I had I had one really really great, um, you know, time. The, there there was a, a time that really kind of sticks out to me that. I, after a just long, crazy shoot, I stayed back and um, we were still like on location, still in, in a deserty kind of location area. Um, but uh, I stayed back to just kind of de-stress and uh, the, the actress who plays Emma, who her and I are good friends. We go back uh, a long time and we, we just kind of stayed. We just hung out. We talked about the project and... Um, you know, talked each other up. I was telling her how amazing she's been in the film. She was talking about how much she's been appreciating me and, and uh, my directing and all that. And um, I think the main thing, and, and I would say this, I guess, as a kind of lesson if, if you are working on a film or if you're, is to just, as much as it's silly, don't forget about the director. Because um, as much as obviously they're in charge, they're the big boss, and sometimes they can be scary they're people too and they're probably stressed out of their mind trying to make sure it's a fun project and it really meant a lot whenever crew members would check in on me and, and um, want to chat about how I'm doing and how the project how, if I'm having fun um, and just those little moments kept me going you know the, those moments of, of getting the reception back that people were having a good time and that people were happy with what I was doing and having those moments of, of crew and cast just kind of reaffirming that we're, we're doing this and it's fun and that I'm doing a good job uh, really made all the difference. It, it boosted my stamina right back up to a hundred and I was ready to go the next day. So it was kind of like getting feedback from the crew and knowing what you're doing is working. Yeah. It kind of helps. Yeah, it at does. Least you know, all the work you're doing is at least work. Yeah. Yeah. Directors don't often get, um, obviously they get all the praise when, when the movie's out, but during the process, it's their job to give out the praise. And there's no responsibility of any crew member or cast member to give the director praise. That's silly. But, um, but it, it is a, we're, we're people too. We like affirmation. We like to know what we're doing is working. And, um, and it does definitely make a difference when, when you have the person who takes the time to be like, I'm having fun. You're doing a good job. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so you finished filming all the movie, right? And I think you said you earlier you said you recently got uh, long like a rough draft edited, right? Yeah, we we're almost done with the with the final cut actually. We're, yeah, so basically what's the current state of the film and then kind of what's the rest of the timeline yeah. to when it comes up. Yeah. Um, cuz I feel like it's interesting from your perspective because this is an indie film and you like you sure. said not a lot of people your age film feature films, so I'm curious mm-hmm. Like, how are you learning how, how to, cause like you've never been past this process, I'm right. assuming, right? 
Yeah. I mean, the, the biggest thing that we're learning is that it takes a lot longer than we <laughs> expect. Um, cause we, uh, me and my, my editor who is phenomenal. Um, we, we wrapped the film in July of 2021. That was like our final shot of principal photography, which is like filming the whole movie basically as, as it's written and figuring all that out. Um, we started editing, I believe in, think in october um she was out of town uh visiting home um but yeah so we came back and started editing in october and we were kind of thinking like oh let's uh let's plan for like a january february uh you know completion date of of the the picture um because you have to do it in stages there's there's the the edit of the film that's like just the picture they call it picture lock when it's like done um and that's basically just the visual of the film. It's the film in order with all of the clips cut and in the right places. Is there any dialogue during this film? Yes, there is, but it's it's going to be go- gone over completely oh, all okay. over again by the sound team. Gotcha. Um, so there is dialogue. You can watch it with dialogue, but the sound is kind of just there as like support. Uh, um, so then once picture lock is done, you then move into basically three separate things at once. Um, there's sound, which is sound. You know? <laughs> so you fix up the dialogue, you fix up all the audio, you put in new Foley and sound effects and stuff like that. Um, and you make sure it all sounds good. It's all mixed correctly so that the volume levels are good. So that takes a long time. Is this where you do the... I forget what it's called, where you put dialogue over. If yeah, it's like ADR. Sound. Yes. ADR. Yes. Yeah, so we're actually doing that right now, um, which is which is intense. <laughs> it's hard work because you you gotta you gotta be like saying lines exactly how they were said so that you can get the oh, yeah. the dialogue to match with your mouths. So you don't that want that tough. bad dubbing kind of look. So it's it's tough. Yeah, but in in tons of, like people think that it's a uncommon thing but it, it happens for a huge portion of almost every movie especially bigger ones because you, you get those industrial sets with just so much noise on them you, you can't have that in the production audio so a lot of the marvel movies a lot of you know i think lord of the rings was like 90 percent adr like if you're watching any given scene from lord of the rings there's a chance it was dubbed over in post-production i feel like how, real quick how do you make sure that the actor is not only saying it at the same like pace and stuff that they yeah. said it in the scene, but also with the same type of energy and like tone. That's the, yeah, that's the tricky part. Um, you got to really remind them what the scene's about, what the, what the intention of that line is, what you're trying to do. So, um, we have, what we'll have the scene kind of, I mean, you don't want to do the other characters dialogue because it can like cut oh, in and yeah. you can, you know, then it's hard to scrub out. Um, but Typically, what we'll do is we'll have the visual with the original audio on a screen. Um, so we'll have like the cut running, and we'll have a mic set up, and we'll play the original line the way the actor said it over and over again, like five, six times. And they just hear it over and over and over again until they kind of got it in their head the way it sounds. And then you hit record, and they try to say it the way they just said it, basically. And you, you cut out the audio from the from the film and then you play it back you sync it you're like okay it needs to be a little bit later um sounds taxing yeah it's 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 tough um and then if you need to give notes if you're like okay cool um that were it was like it was synced it was because that's often what happens is the actor gets it like at the right tempo that they were saying it so it matches but the the emotionality is kind of lost so you're like all right just like you just did but um you know let's you 
what are you trying to say to this person? What are you really thinking about here? And um, if the actor thinks about it for a second, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm supposed to be acting too. Okay, hold on. Because <laughs> it is harder than you would think to like remember that I have to be acting as well as copying. Yeah. Um, and so then they do it again. And usually it takes about two to three takes um, if you're good, I guess. If, um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's – We've been lucky that a lot of the actors we've had come in have been pretty pretty solid and have gotten things done. We've had one take wonders where there's like a, a couple moments of like they'll do it in a certain way and the acting, the tempo, everything is perfect first try. Because the good thing people don't think about is that as hard as it is to dub, this was your performance. You made that choice at one point to, to say the words in that way. So... What the playback really is, is just kind of reminding you the choice you made. And then you just make that choice again. (laughs) So if you were dubbing like a totally different, if you were dubbing a different actor entirely, that's tough. Because then you have to make the same choices that actor was making. And sometimes it just doesn't quite work. Sometimes the way you talk and the way the actor talks doesn't quite align. But if it's you... If it's your performance, just copy your own performance, and it's not yeah. as it's not as hard as you would think. Uh, but it's still it's it's still tough to get it synced. Real um, quick, I, yeah. I noticed uh, when I when I try to sync up the audio yeah. of the podcast to the video, mm-hmm. I like I will think that it's not synced up, and I'll have to have someone else watch it to right. confirm me. Does that happen? It does. It does. Yeah, it's um, a good way to kind of figure it out is to think of like small. Um, separate sounds so like if you have someone say no like just that one word that's a great kind of thing to kind of base it off of because you see your mouth closed you see your mouth open for like one syllable and then close again and you hear that one syllable and you just okay like as the mouth opens you place the sound (laughs) and it should be gone so it's it does happen but um there are tricks you can learn to make it easier on yourself interesting yeah okay so so we were talking about, you said the second the editing process, process there's yeah. sound. And so the sound, um, there's color correction. So color making correction. The, the visual look pretty because it's shot in a certain way, but then you have to do all the, the fixing of the color in, in post-production to make it look exactly how you want. And real quick, when you're filming mm-hmm. like on set, are you thinking about color correction and yeah. like what you're going to edit later yeah, on? Definitely. Um, yeah. My, Ren, my DP, is he's very good with that. And he often shoots in a certain kind of format and the setting that uh, allows for really good color correction. It basically makes the footage all look very kind of flat and gray and overexposed. Like So when you're watching the film, it kind of looks gross and not very good. Um, but it's because by kind of stripping the color and, and creating that kind of raw grayish image on set you're able to then pump color in in post-production so it makes it look gorgeous when it's like the finished product so yeah i would have never known anything about that i'm not a camera person by any means so i was there would be oftentimes where i'd be back looking at camera and be like why does it look like that it's so (laughs) ugly (laughs) and red's like no 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 no. it's not gonna look like this at all don't even worry um so that's a process that we're about to start moving into where uh, especially on those there's a lot of night shoots in the desert where we're, we're out in the dark and he's got lights up and so it's it's all very bright and very unnatural looking but we kind of agreed early on we did not want to go for the um the kind of uh 
Game of Thrones season eight look of like everything super, super dark and realistic because you just can't see anything that's happening. So we wanted to go more the kind of stylist. I keep coming back to Lord of the Rings in case you haven't figured it out. It's my favorite movie. Um, but uh, we kept coming back to that kind of stylistic choice that the people in Lord of the Rings made where the the moonlight in those films is so bright and so unnatural it's it's very blue and like you can see everything around you um but for some reason just the way that they shot it and the way that they you know mixed the colors in with the with the color grading it just reads really well and um it, your your brain doesn't tell you it's unnatural. You just kind of accept it. That like, yeah, moonlight's super bright here. It's super <laughs> blue and beautiful. And because your brain wants to be able to see, you know, you're, you're not saying this is it's too bright. I wish it was dark so I couldn't <laughs> see anything. You know, yeah. It, it seems like as long as there's like something that you could attribute it to, exactly. that makes a little sense. Your brain will yeah. So that's what that's what we're in the process of doing right now is figuring out. Okay, how do we make this bright night look? Um, like it's moonlight and not floodlights. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, it's so that's color correction. That's the the second thing, and then the third thing is music, which is super exciting. I I typically write my own music, but I wanted to do I wanted to really go big with this one and, and get someone who knows a lot more about music than I do. So I've hired a fantastic composer named Brittany who um, is going to kind of be working with me, and we'll be helping each other out. Um, so she's she's like the primary composer and then i'll be like kind of doing incidental moments and um kind of filling in space because it's just it's such a big project you know um there's there's not a whole lot of she's very busy with her own compositions for uh you know she writes chamber music i believe and she 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 does a lot of projects so i'm i'm kind of there as like a you handle the the big stuff and start you know, constructing the skeleton of the of the score itself, and then like if I need to fill in some of the some of the organs here and there, <laughs> I'll do that. What's the um, process of composing for a movie versus just composing to compose? Well, it's um, it's fairly similar. Uh, the way I've always kind of set out to do it, I we haven't really started yet, so I don't know her her process. But I I'm very theme based. Um, I I think that the best scores have. Um, leitmotifs and themes that you can kind of recognize uh you, you look back to like all of john williams work with like the darth vader theme and the the force theme or the harry potter theme um hans zimmer as well is, is also brilliant with it um what it does is it it kind of subconsciously allows your brain to associate musical moments with characters or ideas or places and that way you can kind of use those themes to emotionally gut-wrench people because like if if you start tying you know i I think music is kind of the the real um pathway to feeling in film and to to you know really getting the emotion of something so using ideas that you've already kind of associated with characters to to drive forward story can be really really effective you know if you've got um one of the great uh I guess um, examples of this is uh, going back to Darth Vader's theme. You've got the Imperial March usually plays in full kind of big force. Anytime you see the, you know, the, the Imperial fleet or Darth Vader marching down a hallway and it's always very intense and scary. 
but then you have moments in like in the prequels you've got uh, a scene where anakin is kind of does something fairly dark but it's oh. he's still anakin he's not vader yet but then they just kind of quietly in the Damn. background play that darth vader theme and your brain just goes like oh god he's that becoming really darth cool, vader actually. and if they didn't play that theme Obviously, you'd think, like, oh, Anakin's being dark, he'll become... But it won't have that same kind of, like, emotional hit. Do you think this comes kind of from your, like, theater and musical background? Because I feel like a lot of musicals have that. You know, it actually... It's a good thing to think of, but no, because um, I I just always been really into scores. I Like, when I was four or five, um, I, I started listening to, you know, the Lord of the Rings soundtrack and the Star Wars soundtrack, and that... To this day, it's embarrassing, but like that's my favorite genre of music. I like I really? listen to indie and rock and stuff like that, but nothing hits me like movie soundtracks. Like, will you be driving in your car just yeah with with Tron on? Yeah. Or it is kind of uh, cool. It makes you feel like you're in the movie. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And and I something that I like about instrumental music is that it allows you to choose what you want the music to be about because you know it has a feeling to it, obviously, because there's you know whether it's you know, dark, intense music or sad music or something like that. But uh, music with lyrics has a very s- straightforward story that the artist is telling. And you can listen to it. And sometimes that story resonates with you and it's gorgeous and even more effective than scores are if it's like, if it's a thing that hits you. Um, but if you're listening to a love song that's written by a, you know, an artist who uses lyrics, then the lyrics are already there. The poetry yeah. is already there. If you listen to a love piece of instrumental music, you can just put that anywhere. You can say, wow, this music makes me feel like I felt when I was dating this person. Oh, that's this, cool, you know, yeah. And you can just, just apply know, it to whatever. Apply it to whatever, exactly, yeah. So that's that's something that I think is um, unique to instrumental music. And that's why I really love it. Um, but to, to answer your earlier question of the process is, yeah, I start with the themes. I start with like what needs themes and sometimes it's characters. Sometimes it's ideas. Um, Lord of the Rings uses it for places, which is really interesting because the whole of the, of that trilogy is kind of about home and about saving your home and um, restoring your home. So every character's theme is associated with where they're from. So like all the hobbits have the same theme because they're all from the same home. Um, and then, you know, Aragorn and Boromir, who are very two very different characters, both have the Gondor theme, and that kind of represents them and reunites them together, which is which is cool. So I think that what's important is for you to think, what is your film about? And that's where you kind of set out to do uh, for your ideas and your themes. Like one, one big thing that we've discussed already, me and the composer, is that Lauren will not have a theme because this is Lauren's film. And the whole movie is Lauren. So um, for us to give her a theme, it would be playing every five seconds. Oh, you know? I see. So instead, we've said, all right, what are the things in life that are pressing or important or big to Lauren? So there's a theme for her brother. There's a theme for her love interest. There's a theme for the fear that she has of the, of the future. There's a theme for the courage that she has to kind of stand in the face of that. There's a theme for the apocalypse and what it's doing to her. So everything is like themes that Lauren feels so that we can be as much in her head and the music can be kind of like an insight into what's going on in, inside her brain. How much of this do you think the audience is like consciously picking up on or do you think it's more 
like your subconscious brain is kind of just working in the background, recognizing yeah. that whatever this song plays. It depends on the person, but I think it's mostly subconscious for most people. That's How many crazy. people are like, because for me, when I go to see a movie and I and I can tell that there's like a good soundtrack, I'll start trying to think like, okay, which uh, who's, yeah. whose theme is this? What's this? Um, and it usually takes two, two viewings gotcha. to get that. Um, but uh, I think mostly it's subconscious. Um, so, so one thing that I do try to do with my themes is make them memorable make them um hummable i always say is the kind of thing that i go i think there's a lot of composers who who are brilliant and you know they write gorgeous music but they're there's the songs are so complicated that you leave the theater and you think wow that music was incredible but i can't remember a goddamn note of it you know I, yeah I, it makes me think about time from inception it's yeah. literally just isn't it it's pretty much just like four notes going back and forth. Exactly. And yes. It's like simplicity. It just has so much power though. Whenever yeah. that is. Da, 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 da. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jaws, one of the f- most famous themes of all time is two notes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's the thing is so many pieces of music. Um, just if they're effectively hummable, just make you think of that thing. And it just, it immediately, can, if I start going, da, 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 you're thinking, Harry Potter, but you're mm. also thinking all the things that come with Harry Potter. If, if Harry Potter annoys you, you're probably like, oh, fucking Harry Potter. <laughs> if you grew up with Harry Potter, if you love Harry Potter, you you go back to Hogwarts and you feel that kind of... So that's that's the importance, I think, of, of music that you can remember and you can like lock onto and be like, that's the Harry Potter theme. Uh, I remember I, I've, I loved Harry Potter in middle school um, and then I kind of distanced from it as I got into high school. But going back, uh, going to Universal Studios for the first time, like after high school and going there and just being hit with the John Williams theme all around me was just like, I felt like a little kid again. It just transported me in this way that, yeah, it's amazing what it can do. So for me, I think having moments where, um, you know, use the, uh, the, um, the characters for the love interest story in my film. Um, one thing that we're kind of doing with it, I think is that we're writing the theme for this, this girl that, that Lauren is into to be fairly dark and minor and kind of sad because they're, they're not connected when the story starts. They've, they've had a falling out like years ago and they haven't talked since and they kind of end up, together again for the first time in years and they don't know what to do and it's it's very separate so we're using this kind of minor version of the theme um and then as the movie goes and they they work things out bit by bit and they slowly kind of come together the movie or the theme gets more and more major and more happy and more you know and so the hope is that people will be able to subconsciously feel that this is the same music it's the same feeling but it's getting more positive. It's getting less dark and less problematic and more yeah. good. I love the idea that your brain kind of subconsciously picks up on these things. Because when yeah. I've tried making short films in the past, there'd be ideas I have where all I think it's cool, but then I'm like, but who's like actually going to notice this? Right. You know. But when you think of it from this perspective, it's kind of like it doesn't necessarily matter if they consciously notice it as long no. as they kind of get the feeling from it that you're trying to get. Yeah, it's about the feeling. It's, it's also about... <clears throat> The audience, regardless of whether or not they know what the backstory is, what the thing is, they can tell the difference between when there is one and when there isn't one. Mm -hmm. Um, Because how the writer 
and the director makes a film and makes a project, um, the more they know about the project, the more complete and cohesive it will just be and feel. Um, that was a big thing I was dealing with when I was making my first big sci-fi kind of short film. Um, was a, It was a thing called Dissolvers. And... You know, it's a it's an eight minute film that's set in the distant future in this kind of Blade Runner esque totalitarian government um, world. And in the first minute, they're throwing around like terms like "you're sentenced by the UEA" and we're and just tossing around stuff that, like, to me, I know exactly what all this stuff is, but I just accept the audience never will. They'll never know what any of this means. But they're watching a world that is developed. And they're saying, I don't know what that means, but all those actors do. So really what it is, is it creates this authenticity and this feeling in the world where you're like, oh, this is a lived in world. We're just suddenly like being thrown into it. And that I think is, is, it's such a hard thing to do, but it's so important in creating a good, like good world building versus bad world building. Because so much, I've seen so much crap i'm not gonna name any names (laughs) but so much stuff where they spend the first 20 minutes of something just hammering you over the head with like this is what this is this is what this is because they're so terrified that the audience won't be able to fill in the blanks and you you have to treat your audience like they're smart it kind of seems like doing that makes it so when the audience does hear these things it doesn't seem like the thing was just made for the movie, but rather it just already existed yeah. and the movie had to include Yeah, the, the movie isn't about this. It's just set in this world. Yeah. So that's exactly right. And, and obviously, if it's important, yeah. you, you got to somehow figure out how to explain it. But it doesn't have to, ha- it doesn't have to happen immediately either. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, one thing that, that's great about the opening to Star Wars is... Um, and I'm, I'm talking about the, the original, like episode four, um, is the opening sequence is just this giant space battle, right? And they just launch you and they don't tell you who these people are. They don't tell you, oh, this is the rebellion and they're, the big ship is the empire and they're the bad guys. They, you just see all these people running around. They're clearly afraid. And then the door gets blasted off and they're all shooting lasers and your brain's just like, okay, they have laser guns. Cool. <laughs> There's robots walking around talking. So one of them talks, the other just goes, you know, <laughs> and your brain is like, okay, there are robots and some of them speak English and some of them don't. And, and your brain is figuring it out because when you see a clearly defined world, it, it challenges the audience, which is so nice and be, being like, when, when you can tell that the director is treating you like you're smart and that you can figure it out, then you want to give them the benefit of the doubt. You want to be like, yeah, I am smart. Hold on. What's going on here? And you like, you, you sit forward in your seat and you're trying to figure out, okay, so the, the guys in the white armor, they seem to be mean looking. They're shooting down at these, yeah. these afraid people. I'm, I'm guessing they're the bad guy. And then you get the big black, you know, uh, Darth Vader costume coming through the door. You don't know who he is, but you're like, he looks scary. He's probably the bad guy in charge. And so once again, you don't need to introduce these characters with words. Um, show don't tell is, is a huge lesson in writing. Yeah. I remember you, I actually sent you a script like my first semester of college. Yeah. And I had a lot of like, what do you, inner dialogue that he would speak right. to kind of get his emotions across. And you suggested like getting rid of the inner dialogue mm-hmm. and sh- finding ways to just show it. Yeah. And yeah. I thought, 
know, it's it cool because it like challenged me, but I felt like overall it made it a lot better yeah. afterwards. Narration sucks. I hate, <laughs> I hate narration. Um, it's it can be useful. There are times in which um, the character speaking directly to themselves or the audience works. I think in like in Deadpool, it works really well, but. That's because the story is being told in a certain way, you know, with this fourth wall breaking kind of thing, it works. If you just have a character giving narration because you don't know how else to show that, I implore you to just try to figure it out because there's a way. And if it doesn't happen immediately, that's okay. It, you can have something where you're like, it would be really great if the audience knew this on page one, you know, in, in minute one. But if it can't happen until minute 10, does your film end? Is it a, you know, destroyed scrap pile? Can it, can it not, is it unwatchable? Probably not. They can probably go 10 pages without knowing that bit of information if you have no way to explain it in visuals. Yeah. So take your time. You know, it's, it's, it's not a race. Um, as long as you give the audience what they need to know, then the rest will come later. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I kind of like those movies where uh, the first scene I'm kind of just thrown into something mm-hmm. and then it all just starts connecting afterwards. Yeah, exactly. It's a very fun Exactly. Problem. And it's also, it makes your films better for rewatch value. That's that's a oh, huge yeah. thing for me that I always like think about is I, I hate the idea of creating a film that is only fun to watch the first time because I love rewatching movies, you know? And, and there are movies I've seen that I'm like, this was great, but I have no interest in ever seeing it again because... Yeah. It's it's all about that first experience, um, but I always try to pepper my films with like details that you want to go back and watch and be like, oh, that was here, <laughs> you know. Now I know what this is all about. Um, yeah, my uh, one thing that was really funny was uh, I did a forty eight hour film festival um, in twenty twenty one where I made a film about witches uh, called Fair and Foul and during the screening of the festival something went wrong with like the projector and stuff about like three quarters into the film now it's, it's oh, only wow. like seven minutes long so it didn't take that long but um they had already seen the big reveal of the witches and everything and like who the witches are and what's going on and then the projector failed and the thing stopped and the oh, wow. um yeah and everyone was like oh yeah and i was i was heartbroken of course um but then the uh, the professor who was running the festival was very, very kind said, I want to get your full viewing experience. So we're going to start the film over. We're going to play it like from, and I thought that was going to crush it because I was like, Oh God, now everyone's going to have to like start over, watch the whole movie over again. But then people came up to me afterwards saying like knowing the twist, but not knowing the ending and then going back and rewatching like, the stuff that you laid where like now we know who this person is we know who these characters are we can see all the clues you laid early on in the film um were like oh it, it was the constant like the leonardo dicaprio pointing me of like <laughs> the, the like wait that's here oh my gosh i didn't think about that um when i first watched it and uh we we swept the festival we, we won wow. almost every single award and i wonder would that have happened if we hadn't seen it twice yeah. So, so you're actively thinking about this when you're trying 100%. to make it a second watch. Yeah, because you you should you should not be thinking of for basically I think a, a trait in a good writer and a good director is 
thinking about watching the film in all mediums. Obviously, there's there's the best experiences, which could be on the big screen in a movie theater, or it could be just the first time you watch it. But you have to be able to make something that still works on your iPhone or still works the third, fourth time you've seen it. You need, you need to be able to have it be something that can be viewed at any time, after any amount of times, in any place. Because if it's not, then you're creating a very limited experience for yourself, and your film just isn't going to do that well long-term. Because um, I'm also a big fan of the whole, like, the idea of the cult classic, where, you know, wasn't great, it wasn't super well-received when it came out. Obviously, you want it to be, but there's a lot of films that kind of had a bad, bad luck when it first came out. But then since found a following found people who it like resonated with and and it's my dream that if i ever do unfortunately make a movie that critics and <laughs> people don't like that at some point in its life it finds an audience and that the people who it was made for find it um and that may not happen immediately you know i i like making kind of controversial films where they're they're not you know crowd pleasers 100 percent, and i in the hope that I think it would be a lot more fun to, you know, have a movie that 40% of people love and adore. And it's like, wow, this is such a meaningful film to me. And 60% of people were like, eh, it's not for me. Much rather have that than a film where 100% of people are like, yeah, it was fine. I, I enjoyed it, I guess. Yeah, so, you, so you're not trying to like please everyone. You're just no, trying to no. yeah, I, I resonate said, with the people that yeah. they'll resonate with. Yeah, and, and I, I always hope that there's something that everybody can find in it. I never set out to be like, all right, this group of people will not <laughs> like this film. You know, you, you try to please as many people as you can, but in the end, you're telling a story. And you just have to accept that people will, not all people will like that story. So you think to yourself, okay, who am I making this film for in terms of like what the subject, subject matter is? And, um, Life Almost Gone is a story about, loss and about grief and about you know growing up and it will rep it i think it will resonate with people who are feeling those things who are who have experienced losing somebody recently who have experienced losing someone a long time ago um who are experiencing that kind of turning point in their life where they don't know what they're going to do next um i think it'll hit people like that it may not hit people who don't feel any of that yeah. um and that's okay because if they don't like it they don't like it it's it's all good um, well, i think one thing that's cool about yours is for everyone, there's at least a chance they might be able to resonate with the apocalyptic idea of it because everyone would exactly, it. yeah, yeah. You, you, like I said, you don't want to make a movie that's automatically going to alienate people. Yeah. But at some point down the road, you will have to commit to a perspective on a film, and you'll have to commit to an idea that this is what the film's going to be about. And I mean, look, look at us. We're we're so divided. This this nation, this world is so. My opinion. My opinion. You just have to understand that not everyone's going to like it. I know not everyone's going to like this movie, but I hope a lot of people will. I think there's a lot in it for a lot of people. Um, but, you know, I knew I did a, um, a play called Antigone. Uh, it, was, it was my own adaptation of a play that was like thousands of year, years old. And I wanted to combine all three of these Oedipus stories into it. So there's like Oedipus Rex, which is the first of the plays. Oedipus at Colonus, which is the second, and then Antigone is the third one. And I wanted to tell all three stories because I didn't want to assume, even though I, I wanted to do Antigone, that was the story I wanted to tell. 
there's two episodes prior. I don't want to assume that everyone in the audience was caught up on their ancient Greek <laughs> history and knew the background. Of course. So I wrote a uh, you know a self written adaptation of this story, and it was it was two and a half hours long, and it was told telling the story of Antigone, but using flashbacks to those other plays to fill in the gaps. And flashbacks on stage, because this was a theater play, flashbacks on stage are tough to get across. I mean, I, I think we managed to do it in a way that worked and made sense to most people. But there were some people who could tell were like, what's going on? Where are we? Because when you see actors walk off stage and walk on stage, you know, yeah. without a, like, clear, this is a different time period, a different place. Yeah, you don't have, like, a transition. Yeah, you can do it's it. hard. So we use mainly music and light to show that we're transitioning into different time periods but those are so subconscious that if you're not putting it together you can kind of get lost and there's there's moments where it's i i'm sure it was a little there was some catching up people had to do um and you don't want to just straight up say like this is a flash exactly remember when that you know project on this on the (laughs) stage like five years earlier yeah it was yeah so i did what we were just talking about i i assumed the audience would was smart and i hoped that they would figure it out and in general it is a two and a half hour greek play about um corruption and uh you know a a king who has decided to enact totalitarian vengeance on a city by like punishing those who are different so it's it's very much it's very timely it's very much like when I was writing it going like, okay, I know this play is literally over 2000 years old, but you could easily apply this to Democrats and Republicans right now. So I had kind of a representation, not to get too political here, but um, in my head, uh, you know, the, the kind of the king represented the, the kind of the fascist reign that's kind of happening in America right now with, um, you know the, the kind of the, the Trump legacy and yeah. what's going on with that, um, but then the the Queen, who in my eyes is just as bad, but does not actually enact any kind of evil, horrendous rules. She just kind of sits by and lets it happen quietly. I'm like this is what the Democrats are doing. <laughs> These uh, are so. There's no good guys here. It's, also, that's is, cool. so you added like a. Mo- yeah. So did you add a modern spin to it, or did you kind of just use that it to base was, your character? It was set in a kind of sci-fi, planetary kind of, oh, wow. like, yeah, so it was not set on Earth. It was set in some weird, you know, we didn't specify, we didn't say, we, we were saying um, Greece and all, all the things that are set in the play, but very clearly, based on costuming, based on the way we were doing it, it was not an Earth play, yeah. it was it was a... You know, sci-fi thing because I, I didn't want it to be tied to any particular point in history I wanted people to be able to pick out for themselves what the play was about to them and you know, to me writing it obviously I'm like yeah this is um, the king is uh, Trump um, enacting cruel and unusual punishment on the country and the queen is Biden standing by and letting it all happen and not doing anything um, uh. but to a Trump supporter, I would hope that they would still be able to watch it and enjoy it and not feel vilified because they can look at it and be like, oh, this is Hitler and this is um, Churchill or something like that. So you can do whatever you want when you choose to set it in any random period. But once again, if you did go to see it, the, the Trump parallels were not lost on 
they're they're not subtle. <laughs> well, at the very least, like let's say you got a huge Trump supporter coming in, right? You're also talking about the other side by using the Queen, so they kind of have yeah, that exactly. And but that goes into my whole thing of like if you go in and you're a big Trump supporter and you see the parallels and you see that I'm I'm making a play where the king is like Trump and he's the bad guy, you may not like it. So I could have chosen to not alienate that group of people and to say, um, all right, let's make this more politically correct. Let's make it more. But then you're just losing the point of this. This is a political play. I think of it as like you're diluting the content. Exactly. Because the more people you want to like it, the more like diluted it gets. Yeah, to make a political play... And try not to make a political statement yeah. is impossible. It is just not. And that's what I told the, uh, the, the cast on, on day one. I was like, so listen, I know in theater there's a lot of that, like, whatever your belief, whatever your your political party is fine. And that's true here. But I want you all to know just off the, off the front, we're not going to be subtle with this. This is, this is the perspective we're t- telling. If you have an issue with that, please come speak with me. Um, and if that's something you're not comfortable with, then then I understand you don't have to be a part of it, but this is the story we're telling. And that's, you, we just have to have this perspective or what's the point. Yeah. And I kind of hope kind of what we were saying earlier about having expectations, like maybe an audience member, even if they don't agree with what you're saying politically, yeah, I hope like people could appreciate maybe let's say they were to agree with your point that the way you were able to show it right. through the play worked it, like more yeah. of the storytelling aspect than just the truth. And that, that's always the, the hope is that um, I think art in general is a brilliant way to convey um, perspective and to convey meaning and feeling, um, especially art that is told passionately, but not in an, in a way of attacking. Uh, I, I, I didn't ever feel that Antigone was attacking Trump supporters I felt that it was it was a depiction of my perspective on the Trump administration and the Biden administration and like the worst of both. Um, but I didn't put that anywhere in the program. So there could be people <laughs> who, you know, saw the play and would listen to this podcast and be like, wait, you're in a sea with Biden? I had no <laughs> idea. And that's fine. But to me making it, you know, when I was writing it, I was thinking like, yeah, we need to show that this is not black and white because the play is not black and white. Even um, Antigone, the character of Antigone, she's this very rebellious um, teenager who's like um, the the whole play centers around this idea of uh, there have been two brothers who have been at war over the crown for like six, seven years. And... um, the two brothers have just killed each other in combat. So they're both dead. So this whole war has been for nothing. And the crown passes to uh, Creon, their uncle, the king. Um, and Creon was on the side of one of these brothers. So they give this brother this brilliant um, funeral, uh, you know, all rights, all honoring to the gods, etc. And they leave the other brother out in the dirt to rot and be eaten by birds. Which in ancient Greece, where like burial and ceremonial rites are your way of getting into the underworld. And if you're not buried, you're you're like trapped here. It's it's like major, major punishment. Um, So Antigone is the sister of these two brothers. Um, a princess and everything and she comes back to the city and finds out that this has happened to her brothers um and she rebels and buries the body 
And so the play is about the consequences of that and this this king enacting his, his judgment saying, even though you're my niece, you you have to suffer. You will, I'm going to put you to death. I'm going to kill you for that. And Antigone saying, but what I did was morally right. You know that they're not, you, you can't punish someone beyond the grave. It's over. The battle is over. They're both dead. They've both been punished as much as we mortals can punish them. Now it's up to the gods. And by denying Hades, um, you know, burial of this, you are saying that you as a human being are more, are able to judge this person in a way that Hades is not, which is like blasphemy. It's like, it's horrendous. So, but that being said, there is even a perspective that's anti-Antigone. She's probably the most like realistically um, heroic character in the, in the play. She's, you know, a rebel. She goes and buries her brother despite it being illegal. But, you know, she's, she's a rebel who decides I'm going to throw my entire life away and I'm willing to die in order to, do this thing that's right. And not everyone might agree with that. Some people might say, like, would your brother want that for you? He's already dead. Would he want his little sister to die just to get him to the underworld? Um, so there's a lot of perspective. There's no black and white in this play, which I think is fascinating. It's, it's I, I implore people as much as possible when they're writing their films and stuff to not say this is the good guy and this is the bad guy. You can have your perspectives if you've got your protagonist who is their bad guy. But think about it in terms of like this, every character has a perspective and the perspective should be fleshed out realistically and honorably in the sense that like if someone came to Antigone who was a Trump supporter and they agreed with Crayon, then the play is a different experience for them, but it's still an experience. I feel like it also helps show that like, like basically life in general is not really black and white. No one's morally the best. They don't have all the morally right opinions. A lot of these topics are like, like a bit grayish, right? So by having the main hero of the story still be able to be debated or Mm -hmm. in some sense question their uh, moral reasoning, it's, it's like more realistic, I feel. Definitely, definitely. And it's 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 risky to, to make a protagonist who is not entirely morally good. Um, but I feel like we have to do it in order to be like responsible to a character. Um, and protagonists especially are hard. They're they're the hardest characters to write because there are eyes into the world and we spend so much time putting stuff into them and making sure that they are a protagonist and someone that we know truly and we can see the world through them that we learn all their pros and all their cons in a way that we don't all the other characters and i find it's it's interesting that most of the time when you go into a movie especially with an ensemble cast the favorite character is hardly ever the protagonist because we know so much about them they're like i said they're us if we go into this cool escapist fantasy world are we going to be our own favorite character? Probably not. It's going to be the cool wizard. It's going to be the comic relief. It's going to be the yeah. villain. It's going to be the cool, the characters who are different. So creating a protagonist is kind of, you, you automatically go in kind of thinking this may not be the favorite, but it doesn't matter if they're the favorite. What matters is, are we rooting for them or against them? If it's a, you know, one of those like Thanos type things where, um, Thanos is the protagonist of Infinity War. If you look at it, we can talk about that if you're confused on why that is. But um, 
you know, you need to have a strong opinion about the protagonist. You need to to feel some some deep feeling of whether or not they should succeed. So you need to care, but you don't have to like them. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's always a goal of mine, especially if it's a morally good, mostly character, to make the audience like the protagonist. I, I tried very hard to make Lauren likable and charismatic. Um, and thankfully, most of the test screenings we've had and stuff, people do like Lauren, but she's not the favorite character. You know, people like the, the um, people like Emma, people like the stoner pothead, which is understandable <laughs> because you don't, if we explored Emma is in, you know, in as much depth as Lauren, she would no longer be the constantly funny, constantly show stealing character. Oh, she would yeah. just be the main character and we would probably be more interested in someone else. So make your character as fleshed out as possible. Make your character as real as possible. Make them, relatable make them um someone that we can view the world through but at the end of the day don't don't feel the necessity to make them the most fun best greatest character just as long as they are the character that the story is about that's that's really what it's all about damn okay so it's interesting because doing these podcasts i always fear that it's like I'm going to run out of things to ask, but now it's just like there's so we many different routes I want to go yeah, down. We could talk all day. <laughs> yeah, so real quick, uh, I want to get to the Thanos thing real quick. Like yeah. For the and the the play you did, is there any like recording of it by any chance? There is, yeah. Is it on YouTube? Uh, is it is not, it? It's not available anywhere. I could show it to you. Okay. Sorry about that, guys. I would love to see it personally. Yeah. it's uh, The main reason is that um, there's there's a lot of stuff in it that, I'm not sure that I want out in the world because, um, you know, it's it's a play which is a little different from a film. Which, like, with a film, once it's made, you kind of can't remake it. With plays, you could watch that film and then, like, copy down the script and then start putting on that play with my, you know, my yeah. words and my stuff out there. So I have... I have the play and I'm willing to show it to anybody who wants to come over and watch it. Um, I'm obviously sharing it with the cast and stuff. They can use it in their reels and all that. But, but yeah, it's, it's not public um, domain, unfortunately, um, because I, I would like if someone ever wants to make Antigone, my Antigone into a play that they ask me and get the script legally. Are you actively trying to? Not at the See moment, it. but it's something I've thought about. I, I might do That's another, awesome. you know, another pass at the script now that we put it on. I've seen what the audience reactions are. I might, you know, touch it up a little bit, fix some things that um, I thought could have been better. But I'm very proud of the production we put on for for a very small budget. It was it was kind of an astounding um, spectacle to watch because it was just so massive. I, I the uh, the producers come on and say like this is by a landslide the biggest play we've ever done here in terms of scale yeah. you know it's two and a half hours which is already long but when you add in the amount we did with with production design with lighting design there were <laughs> this is a good um so the company we did it with was a student-run organization at unlv um but then unlv also has a like an actual faculty-run theater that's like got tons of money tons of budget <laughs> and everything so they put on Little Shop of Horrors, which is a oh, wow. big musical, yeah. you know, uh, in the wintertime and then like in the early winter, around December. And we did Antigone in February. And Antigone had more lighting cues than this wow. massive musical, <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> which is just, it's, yeah, I think they had something like flex. 
yeah, it was it was crazy. I don't know. I don't remember the exact numbers, but um, the girl who was my lighting designer uh, was working on the other show, and she says, "Yeah, we have like twenty to thirty more lighting cues than Little Shop did because it's just it." Yeah, um, yeah. What people kept saying when they came out of it, which I guess makes sense for me being me, was that it was um, the show was incredibly cinematic. Because I, I was looking at it from the perspective of like, this isn't a movie, but I've got a movie maker's brain yeah. going into it. So I'm, I'm playing a lot more with like effects and transitions and music and stuff like that than typically your standard play, like straight play, um, does. Usually it's a, it's a stage with a set and you've yeah. got some lighting changes for different moments and scenes. But with this, it's like dramatic shifts and... Yeah, it was, it was really cool. Well, I'd love to see it. Yeah, come over sometime. So, okay, I know I said we'd be done around like two hours in, but there's a few questions I wanted to make sure I asked before. I'm, I'm not – I'm good until four. So you, okay, sweet. You got me whenever you – yeah. All right, so first, back to Thanos being the protagonist. Sure. I'm sure people are now probably wondering <laughs> why you think that. Yeah, this is this is not like some big discovery I made or anything. This is, this is talked about often. But um, when you look at what the protagonist is in a story, the protagonist is – really the the character that the story is about in the sense that like um we are seeing their journey through the story we're seeing their they have the greatest desire and want that is like the forefront of the story something i always tell people is if look at all the characters in your story and what they all want like their their goal and um Make sure you have the right protagonist because sometimes you'll have a story and you'll be like, all right, I've got the protagonist who wants to ask out um, their crush and their best friend is dealing with cancer, right? Oh, and they're the supporting character. And you're like, okay, so one character wants to ask out a girl and one character wants to live <laughs> through <laughs> cancer. Oh, Obviously, it's a very different story. You can still tell that story, but the most pressing concern is the one the audience will care about the most. So if you create a store, a rom-com where the best friend is dying of cancer, the audience isn't going to give a shit about that love story. They want to know about what happens to the best friend with cancer. So maybe you should actually be telling the story of the person with cancer and the, the person who has the crush can be the supporting character that the cancer patient is helping. Like, yes, I have cancer, but here's my best friend trying to ask out this girl. And that's what the movie's about now. Cause that's kind of cool. That it's like this new... So always make sure that your protagonist is the one who is dealing with the, with the biggest problem um, and has the biggest desire, the biggest want, and is constantly motivated. Because I, I hate passive protagonists where it's like, okay, there's a... Um, you, know, you go through the movie with stuff happening to you. That's just never as much fun as when the protagonist is actively making choices to make the next thing happen. You know? real, real quick, going back to the, the rom-com example, is yeah. there a way to do that where maybe first off you just um, make sure the romance part is like more in it? Like this sounds kind of fucked up to sure. say. And then like maybe, is there also a way to maybe like make the person who's fighting cancer's arc somehow fit into the main story arc? You could, but I mean my best recommendation would be if you have a story where you want it to be a rom-com, you want the oh, love yeah. story to be... Um, yeah, or, or just in general, if you want it to be, if you want the story to be about a romance, about a love story, make all the other conflicts real. Make every character want something, but don't give anyone anything bigger 
gotcha. than the problem at hand. You can give people things that are equal to. You know, you could have the best friend also have a crush that they want to ask. I just don't go into it as much in as much detail because they're not the protagonist. Well, I'm thinking like, have you seen Tick, Tick, Boom? I haven't yet. Okay, I don't think this is really spoiling anything. But in Tick, Tick, Boom, basically the main protagonist, like his problem is trying to get this show to yeah. be seen and like trying to become fit, like famous, you know, make yeah. the show a success. And then like midway through, a, a part of the way through, his best friend finds out he has AIDS. Right? Sure. Okay. So obviously fighting AIDS seems like people would care about it a lot more. But I, I don't know. I, I don't know like how I would describe how they did it. But mm. somehow I still feel invested in the main character story. Sure. Um, part of that can be the fact that we've already established at the beginning what the movie's about. And then Gosh. that's that secondary storyline kind of comes in halfway through when the when the story's already taken off. So that could be part of it. Um, but that's why I, that's why I was also wondering, like, if you somehow make the secondary storyline fit into the first one, because I think after he finds out he has like this big breakthrough, he writes some song like yeah. mainly just about the friend, not even about the play he's trying to write. Yeah, so and that's somehow- it. Because here's the thing: is when the friend uh, gets gets the illness and everything. Um, is does the protagonist care is he is he still okay. focused on the original goal of i just want to be famous or is he now more focused on the friend and i don't know i haven't seen the film but i would assume no, that would, it's, it's yeah, focused right. on the friend and that's that's always interesting because that means the goal shifts which does happen sometimes um sometimes it doesn't sometimes you, the character has their standard i want this thing throughout the whole film and that's what the film is about but it can be interesting when you want to have the, the protagonist goal shift. It just always needs to shift to something bigger, like dealing with your friend who has mm-hmm. um, has this disease. Um, so that that has now become the storyline. So that's yeah, that's your answer. Is yeah, and yes. I guess it, it actually does a big part at the end because it's based off. I forget what the actual guy's name is, but uh-huh. he he wrote Rent, which right. I'm pretty sure is about the AIDS crisis. Right. So it also works as like yeah. the motivation. Yeah, exactly. So guess, yeah. That, um, so yeah, you, you, you need to have your pr- protagonist dealing with something, um, that is the biggest concern. Um, and yeah, cause you, you don't want the audience feeling like this is the least interesting story. It's <laughs> the main character story. So is that why Thanos um, is considered? Yeah. So Thanos is when you, when you think about who has the most screen time in that film, it's definitely Thanos. He is on screen the most, um, and the whole movie, when you look at the journey of the film, the journey is Thanos getting the Infinity Stones. He goes from someone who has like one or two, he has this, this desire, this deep drive to fix life in the universe and to solve the, the universe's problems. Whether or not you agree with his solution, I, I certainly <laughs> don't. But he believes that this is this problem that only he can fix. And he goes out on this the hero's journey um, and he accomplishes each goal bit by bit and it's hard it's it's a struggle sometimes it, it takes a, a physical fight sometimes it's a mental fight he has the the scene with his daughter that's i'm not going to spoil anything but that's a big you know it's a big moment for his character and he goes through this massive arc and um big spoilers for for people who haven't seen infinity war to skip like 10 seconds from now he wins he gets what he wants um in the end he he accomplishes his ultimate goal so when we look at that, we look at the Avengers in response. The Avengers are the antagonists. They are, their goal in the film is simply to stop him. And that is typically the, the, the goal of an antagonist is, um, 
in some way, for some reason, stopping the protagonist. So you wouldn't say like protagonist and antagonist is necessarily the same as good guy and bad no, guy. No, it's not. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, another classic example of this is um, is uh, Macbeth by William Shakespeare. Super, super old play. But um, yeah, the, the Scottish king, Macbeth, uh, he is... He goes into the play, you know, ruthlessly murdering good people left and right to become king. But we are telling the story from his perspective. He has this this desire, this want. And we see the play through his eyes. And at the end, this really good, noble character who's had his family slaughtered by Macbeth comes in and defeats and kills Macbeth. But that character is the antagonist because he stands in the way of the protagonist. So yeah, antagonist doesn't have to be a bad guy. Your antagonist can be a good guy, truly morally good. All it means to be an antagonist is to stand in the way of the protagonist. Um, Do you think, so you have like kind of these, I guess, bad guy protagonists, right? Like Thanos. Yeah. I, I, would you say the Joker in that would no. count as that? Well, it depends. Which, which... The one with uh, Joaquin Phoenix? Yes, yes. Because that I'm... Joker, yes, he is the protagonist. So I'm wondering, do you have a responsibility, or maybe not a responsibility, like, is the audience allowed to root for the bad guy, I guess? If I don't know if you need to root. It, it's kind of back to what I was saying about the protagonist in, in general. Is um, you, you don't have to root for them, but you have to understand them. That's gotcha. really what it's about, is... is you can't have an underdeveloped protagonist that doesn't do things that make sense. Gotcha. So the antagonist doesn't have to make sense. I mean, obviously, the writer should know why the antagonist is doing things, but you don't have to over-explain why the antagonist is standing in the way. You just have to have the basic gist of it. Like, this is, you know, um, going back to the, the Heath Ledger joke, Batman <laughs> is obviously the, the protagonist of that film. Um, but... The Joker, we know that the Joker wants chaos and wants anarchy and um, stands in the way of Batman because Batman wants order and wants justice. Um, and the Joker does many things to stand in the way. So it's very clear to us that the Joker is the foil, is, is the, um, the antagonist to Batman. But Batman, we know exactly why he became Batman. We know his whole back. We know about his trauma with his parents. We know his aversion to gun. We know all of these minute things. The Joker, all we know is that he, he likes to watch the world burn. He likes chaos. Um, now, you could flesh out the Joker more, but, the, but like I said earlier, the movie works by having that mystery. So there are two different ways to do it. There, you, you can have a really developed, in-depth antagonist that can be really interesting to watch because you're like, ooh, I understand you too. Both of you people, I, I get, and I see your perspectives. Or you can have a terrifying villain or a terrifying antagonist where you're like, I have no idea why you're doing this, but you want my my boy to, <laughs> to, to fail. So yeah. we, we have problems here. I'm assuming it couldn't work, though, if you had the protagonist kind of like, like Hawking Phoenix Joker, right? Mm -hmm. If you didn't understand the reason he was doing all these like bad things, do you yeah. think it'd be harder for... Yeah, if you don't understand the protagonist, then you don't know why the story is being told. So yeah. the protagonist, you have to understand inside and out for the most part. But at least by the end of the movie. You don't have to understand them at the beginning. But by the end of the movie, you need to get a full understanding of who the protagonist is and why they do the things they do. Because 
like I said, it's their story. That's, yeah. that's the best way to think about a protagonist is, um, you know, it is who's on screen the most. It's, it's who, who's there the most, but it's more whose story is it? You know, what, what story are we telling and, and who does the story belong to the most? Um, so when you look at things, obviously the antagonist is an incredibly important part in telling the story, but because we know the protagonist super well, you, you look at Batman in, in The Dark Knight and you look at the difference between Batman and the Joker and the Joker is the cause of the conflict. He's the inciting incident. He's the reason the movie is happening. But the story of the movie, the idea of like the, you know, you die a hero, you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. So I think what mm-hmm. The Dark Knight is all about is this idea of corruption and staying staying good despite the world trying to make you bad that's not a story about the joker the joker's already bad it's a story about batman because batman is a hero who is trying to make a difference but the clock is ticking and he's having to make hard choices and will his choices in the end make him a hero that like i said that is his story the only other character in that film that I think you could argue it's their story is Harvey Dent because he goes through the same thing that Batman does, but he comes out not becoming the hero in the end. He becomes the villain. Um, so for that, that's what we call foil characters because you have two characters who are on very similar paths, very similar kind of arcs, but then they choose to do different things. And they and it shows like a compare and contrast of like, what the two characters, what the character is and what they could have been. Damn. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I, It just makes me think like, because, I don't know, I don't, the Hawking Phoenix Joker, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I'm necessarily like rooting for the Joker, but at right. the end, but you like, understand it. Yeah, but like also, it's almost like at the end, when he, when he, you know, sh- shoots the guy and stuff, like sure. obviously I think that's morally wrong, but it's kind of, I get yeah. a tiny sense of satisfaction just because it's like, Sure. I don't know. He like won in some way. Yeah, and but we it's spent like a, the whole movie with him. We spent yeah. the whole movie seeing the world through his eyes and understanding who he is as a person and getting to know his wants and his desires. And because the movie's well written and because it's well done, um, we are sympathetic to those to that understanding and to that sort of idea. So um, that's a great example of a of a protagonist who is morally bad still being relatable and still having an audience resonate with him. It just, um, it makes me wonder how, how far you could go with, like if you can make someone understand someone who does even like the most heinous things, yeah. like obviously you'll still think the shit, the stuff they're doing is rep- reprehensible, but I don't know. It just makes you like, I guess, I don't know if hate them less is the right word. I can get Empathize. dangerous. Because yeah. here's, here's the issue with things like that. And it's, one of the reasons I'm actually not a big fan of movies like Joker and movies like um, Taxi Driver uh, is another one. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, it's a one of the issues that you can run into when you create a fully fleshed out, you know, picture of a clearly bad person, um, so well realized and so well understood that we root for them is that it can kind of create copycat people it can kind of bring out some of the bad in you and you have to be aware of that you have to be very cautious of 
the message you're trying to put out into the world because it's very it's easier than you would think to accidentally put the wrong message into the world. I know um, I, I talk about Taxi Driver often because Scorsese uh, wanted to make that movie as a kind of like as a reflection as a holding a mirror to the really kind of sick individuals in the world who feel trodden on, who feel um, like they have a, a greater purpose in life than they are currently on, and that the world is full of evil and corruption and bad. And maybe it's your responsibility to weed that out. Maybe you should take arms and, and, and get up and do it. And obviously that that kind of person is really real and really dangerous. And you know, this this character, um, their kind of desire throughout the film is to assassinate a presidential candidate. Um, but they spend so much time working on the character that Robert De Niro plays that you do understand him. And you, you yeah, so there's a lot of people out there who have seen that movie and instead of taking away the message that Scorsese wanted to tell, which is, this is what this kind of person ends up being like. Look at how bad of a person he is. Look at the shit he caused. Look at the chaos and the bloodshed and all of that. And don't be like that. Instead, people go to the movie and they would go, wow, he's a lot like me, but he actually took action. And look what happened. And then they go out and kill people. (laughs) Do you think people sometimes will see that understanding of the character and like, associated with the actions being okay and that yeah or at least that. inspiring at least inspiring. you know maybe not okay but because i and this it's it's a touchy subject because i i don't believe that movies cause evil in people i don't think that you know you can go from a good person and then watch a movie oh, and shoot up a school yeah. however i do think that art influences people and inspires people so like and an already bad person. someone who's already got all everything they need inside them to be that kind of person to be a joker but might have it dormant might have it being like suppressed and then seeing a successful story of the joker shooting someone in the head and having all those people cheering for him and doing the smile wow this is the greatest day of his life someone who's really damaged and who goes into that movie already having the feelings that the joker has at the beginning of the film then seeing this arc this heroic arc for the joker and all he had to do was kill a couple people yeah you know yeah. could could result in some dark shit it kind of makes so. me think of, do you remember the show 13 Reasons Why? Yeah. I feel like, didn't that get yeah, a lot of criticism a lot for of, a similar a lot of, reason? And and that's the thing, is like, people looked at it, I think a lot of people misinterpreted it in the sense that like, people were saying, the show is making people kill themselves. But it's it's more complicated than that. You know, it's, it's not that it's, uh, it's not that the show made people who are not suicidal suddenly kill themselves it's that it made people who were feeling suicidal already see that it's possible and here's all the things you can do to get back at the people who wronged you after your death and it like it gave here's what it is it gave a roadmap because a lot of people like that know what they want and they know where they are they don't want to be where they are they want to be where they want to be they just don't know how to get there and these you know, people often see movies as inspiration, like I said, as a roadmap. As a and a lot of the time, this is just for good. I've, I've been inspired by movies all the time to like do good things, and and I think that's far more common to to walk out of a movie and be like, wow, that made me want to be a better person. That made me want to ask out this girl. That made me want to make a movie of my own. You know, but 
in in dark individuals who who are going through trauma, who are going through a dark period of their life. Um, movies like Joker, movies, shows like Thirteen Reasons Why, can sometimes be the opposite of what they need. Do you think then? Like, let's say someone wants to make a movie or show that kind of struggles with these topics. What do you think a possible solution is? The important thing is to um, is to depict the reality of what the consequences are. And I think you know, you know, I think the story of Joker could have been told in a way that showed Joker failing. You know. Like, yes, he achieved his goals of killing people, but what did it do to him long term? You know, maybe the the feeling of being covered in blood and having killed his his inspiration, his idol, once the once the trigger was pulled, he couldn't take it back. And suddenly he had just committed this horrendous crime. Um, or maybe he didn't regret it and maybe we just see him as this horrendous you really paint who he is through through the people around him I think a great way of doing that is by showing consequences by showing the family grieving by showing the devastation that you leave in your wake because you you see with the fucking like 15 shootings a week that happen in America a lot of the shooters don't think of the people they're shooting as people they, they think of them as targets. They think of them as um, ways to get famous or ways to get back at society. And something that's always incredibly effective for me just in terms of like really making the tragedy and the grief of a situation real is seeing who the people are that they, that they killed or that they hurt. You know, seeing yeah. like this is um, when you hear 40 kids died in a school shooting the the horrendous thing at this point is that it's happened so often that we're kind of numb to it now we go that's awful that's so horrendous i wish they would pass some fucking gun laws or something do something um but it it's it's not as raw as it used to be but then you see a picture of the five-year-old you see her smiling face you see that she was interested in space and maybe wanted to be an astronaut someday. And suddenly it becomes so much more real because you realize that was a real human being who had wants, who had desires, who had dreams. And their life is gone now. And this person took that away. And by showing the perspective only of the killer, only of the antagonist, you don't give the... You don't give people watching the consequence. And that's what you need to do. If you want to make a story about a dark individual, if you want to hold a mirror up to the darkness in people, you need to show the consequence. You need to make people who can sympathize with that dark individual sympathize even further with the family of the of the lost loved ones. You, you need to make them sympathize with the cause. So I'm not saying make robert de niro more likable but i'm saying maybe if robert de niro sucks and he's awful sure but he's got a daughter at home who now doesn't have a father yeah and i feel like yeah. the, the sympath the goal of sympathizing isn't just so you sympathize with the actions but more you sympathize with the things that the led up to the actions mm-hmm. so that you could feel like people maybe aren't just evil but there's actual reasons for this and there's yeah. ways to prevent it before it happens yeah, because so I, I think, think that it is it is res- 
it's, it's real to tell this kinds of stories about um, people who are in dark places in their lives, who are, um, you know, t- to tell stories about jokers and about um, Travis mm. Bickle, I think is the name of the character, taxi driver. So those types of people, it, it is important to tell the stories because they, they happen, you know, and, and we need to understand and we need to show people who are feeling that way that they are understood and that they're not alone in feeling that way. But we also need to show them what the wrong thing to do is. And that's what right. I feel like Joker and Taxi Driver did not do, truly. And I think both of them tried to, but I think they, they reveled in the violence and the, the, the perspective of the hero in their elation at their success so much that it's hard to, um, you know, some people can walk away feeling like that was a total victory and there was nothing wrong with what the character did because we understand them so well and we don't see the consequences. Um, so if you want to tell a story like that, that's you know that's fine and I think it's it's a good thing to do. But you need to be really careful in the message you're telling and in the way it can be interpreted by people who are not like you and are not as morally good as you. Um, yeah. Oh, I think that's a really cool perspective. I really like that. Uh, okay, I have three more questions that I yeah, want to ask because we are low on time. <laughs> uh, first off, this is something I've been very curious about. So going back to uh, your movie, right? Yeah. So let's say you get to you get to the point where it's all edited, it's ready to be like published and stuff. What is like the plan to market it and yeah. strategy to you know get it out there and just make sure people can see it? Sure. Well, <clears throat> the, the good thing about being alive right now and being a creator right now is there's so many different ways that you can release something the the, the internet and streaming services have made it easier than ever to get your work out there in one way or another um so our our current hope and our plan is to submit it to some big film festivals and hope that it's seen by um you know important people who who resonate with it and either are interested in that film or whatever um or what i'm working on next because i'm writing my next features right now um and that that's the ideal is that we can we can get this film either distributed by someone um, by a bigger company, you know, A twenty four being the dream. But you know, you shoot yeah, for the stars. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, you know, it's we also have to be a little bit realistic. It's a very low budget film by a, but a bunch of nobodies. It's it's very possible that it doesn't get recognized um, and that it flies under the radar. In which case, we would probably go to some streaming services. Um, I know some people who have gotten stuff distributed on Amazon Prime, um, so that might be somewhere we'll go through. We might go to Apple TV. We'll, we'll just kind of send send the film to various streaming services and see if anyone's interested in picking oh, it up. Oh, so is the plan like first try to get it, like maybe get a, a festival theater. or something, right? Yeah, I mean, is it's... Is that how the festivals work? Yes, like, sort that of. I mean, it's... Kind of? Theater would be incredible, but I think the main thing is we, we would love to have some kind of distributor who can not just help us with this film, but can maybe help us with our next Damn, stuff. Because be it's always awesome. about the next next step you know and life almost gone is made so i'm i'm more focused on what's next for me and what what i would like to do next so it would be it would be incredible there's a bunch of things that have happened to people in the past with indie films like that some companies will just buy the film and say like all right we're we're let's say a24 um, we would like to buy your film and distribute it in theaters. That happens. Sometimes they buy the film and just send it to a streaming service, which is also awesome. Sometimes they say, cool, 
we love your film, but we'd like to completely remake it from the ground up with an actual budget, with like actual actors, in which case you did a lot of work and it's an easy thing to kind of think about, like, oh, I did all that work for nothing, we just have to remake it now. But you did, because you did all that work so that you could now remake it with a budget and real actors. Would you remake it? Of course, yeah. yeah. That's um, cool. Yeah, it's it's because it wouldn't be remaking the film. It would be making a yeah, new film maybe. with a similar Because now you have the budget you originally yeah. were like... How can we improve it? upon it? Gotcha. Stuff like that. So um, so that's a possibility. That's happened to people where they'll they'll make a version of a film and then they'll get the big budget version of the film made. I see how this um, could also, going back to like keeping the crew motivated, Yeah, how this works. Because it's not only like you that might get recognized, but maybe they'll love the cinematography 100%. and talk to yeah. the DP. Absolutely. Yeah. This This... So many people came together. I think there's 73 people, including yourself, who have worked on this film at least once in some capacity. Um, so yeah, yeah, Macy, who's the lead actress, could easily be picked up and discovered, and maybe my career will go nowhere, but she'll she'll become the next um, Millie Bobby Brown or something. I don't, yeah. I don't know. So that's any one of us could get a career from this. So it's it's a huge oh. thing, and it's it's something I'm very happy about. It's one of the greatest things about film is that. This is not just a success for me if it works. It's a success for everybody. Um, so, you know, I can I can have my next script ready to go if they want to work with me again. But maybe they'll they'll just look up Julia Bresnan, the ed- editor, and say, like, hey, your editing was phenomenal. Can you work on this movie with us? And I'll get left in the dust. But that's fine because yeah. amazing for Julia. Um, so it's so collaborative and it's just so cool that this could provide opportunities for anyone in this film. There could be a, an extra who was on screen for five seconds and the you know a, a talent agent could just be like, that person looks, has That's it. Star. That's a star right there, <laughs> exactly. And, and reach out to me and be like, who is this person? How do I get in touch with them? And I'd be like, yeah. Well, I'll be waiting for my email. Exactly, there you go. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's super exciting. I think the... Um, and then the one other thing that, that happens sometimes is, um, if nothing happens with this film, is that they'll say, what are you working on next? That's what happened with Christopher Nolan. He made a film very similar to this, where it was him and a bunch of buddies. They made a film with very, very low budget, and they just tried to get it run through some film festivals. They said, cool, that was a great film. What else do you got? And he had the script from Memento with them already written, showed the Memento. They said, cool. Um, we'll get you uh, Guy Pierce. We'll get you Carrie Ann Moss from The Matrix. Uh, we'll get you all these stars so that we can kind of like make your movie more visible. We'll fund it. We'll give you a big budget. And he made Memento, which was a much bigger budget. It was a professional film. Um, he took some of, I think he took his his DP and his editor with him oh, from awesome. his from his like film. Uh, and then he made Insomnia, which was a little bigger. Um, had Al Pacino in it who's a huge you know and Robin Williams as well big actor and then after that he got fucking Batman Begins so you know that's that's like the dream career is you you make your little but um, do you think because I was talking about this on a podcast earlier about Mm -hmm. like not only is it hard to kind of become famous but a lot of like I feel like timing of fame is also important because you can become famous really fast sure and that can like fuck you up right so I'm curious do you think, let's say that did happen to you, best case scenario, they yeah. ask you what you got next, you have a finished script, you show mm-hmm. them, and they're willing to give, like, put a ton of money into it. Do you yep. think, like, at your current state, you'd be able to handle that? Yeah, I have to. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's a thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think something that everybody should keep in mind is you're never ready. You're never ready. 
Um, I wasn't ready to make Life Almost Gone, but I did. And um, I'm sure Christopher Nolan was not ready to make Batman Begins, but he did. And that's the thing is you, you, there's only so much prep you can do to prepare you for the next big thing you've never done before. At, at any point, it's going to be the first time you've ever done it. So you can, you can prep for years and years thinking, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? But at some point, you just have to sit down and do it. And you may make some mistakes. You may, you know, figure things out a little too late and that'll happen. But that's a part of growing. It's a part of learning. It's a part of getting better. So yeah, if, if, if some crazy thing happened, like, you know, someone's saw life almost gone, we're like, Hey, why don't you direct uh, Thor five? <laughs> then yeah, I'd be in way yeah. over my head, but would I say no? Probably not because so I get to direct four, Thor five. Yeah. And for me, it's also, it's never been about fame. It's, it, I don't really have a desire to be a famous director. My desire is to be a director that has the opportunities to make the films I want. So a certain level of being known, of working in big budget stuff is needed for that because I have big dreams. I don't want to make little tiny coming of age films my whole life. I want to make cool science fiction stuff. Um, so, you know, you need to have a certain level of, of, like I said, being known in the industry, not necessarily on the street. I don't need to be the next Christopher Nolan. Um, but it would be very hard for me to make the movies I want to make at my current budget. So there is, there is a desire to, to get recognized, to become more known, to become, uh, higher in the industry just so I can get funding and get the the opportunities to make the films I want to make. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Okay. So then let's say there's someone similar to you, maybe they're in middle school or high school Mm -hmm. and they're interested in making films. Like that's their passion. That's what they want to do. Yeah. What would be, obviously I'm sure it's different based on the type of movie you're filming and like what you're trying to do, but what's like a general step-by-step guide on how they could get started. Maybe they have a short film they want to film. Yeah. Um, I mean, just start making shit. It might be bad, but like you got to make it. Um, so <clears throat> the, the main thing is that there's always a solution to your limitations in terms of budget, in terms of what you have, you know, if it takes filming something on an iPhone because you don't have the budget for a camera, film it on an iPhone. It's better than nothing. You have something. And then maybe you'll be able to show your little iPhone movie to someone, you know, who has a good camera and say like, Hey, this is my, my little iPhone short. You know, it's kind of crap because it's shot on an iPhone, but I was hoping if you like the story, if you like, you know, if you have talent, if you have, you know, a, a gift, if you're creative and you have the opportunity to tell good stories, the other stuff will come to you. It, it'll take time, but it'll come to you. You know, I, I started um, kind of from scratch with, during the uh, during the pandemic. I had been working on theater for years and not having any knowledge in film at all. Um, I took a film class that connected me to like one or two people. We shot a little short that was, I think the crew consisted of literally two other people. So it was me directing and acting and screenwriting and doing all this. And one guy doing camera and one person just kind of helping with whatever else we needed. And we put together this this fun little um, short about being late to school. And I showed it to people and they thought it was fun. And so my next short, a couple of those people who thought it was kind of cool hopped on board and we had a crew of like seven or eight people, you know, and 
kept doing that and kept making a little better, getting a couple more people, a couple more resources. And, you know, then I started my feature. And by the end of the feature, we had 73 people on board (laughs) and like high end, we had a drone, we had high end equipment, but we're still nowhere close to, you know, full. So it's always going to be about growth. And my, my biggest recommendation, if you're not ready, if you don't feel qualified to make a good story yet, that's also fine watch lots of movies that's always the biggest thing is find what you like in cinema think about you know don't just watch movies think about movies think about like these are my favorite movies why are they my favorite not just like oh i love this actor or um this fight scene is really cool think about what makes the fight scene cool what are they doing that's so much different than the fight scenes in other movies that maybe don't hit as quite as hard what is this actor doing that's that's blowing my mind in a way that most actors don't think like really get down and and interview yourself about what you like in films and um there's a there's a common saying of like you know good art good artists like borrow and but great artists steal (laughs) because when you start out as an artist you are just drawing from what you know and what you love and there's a lot of um what some would call tributes and what other people would call stealing from, you know, my favorite movies in my films. And um, I think of it more as like, I always think of it more as as tributes or as um, there's this incredible idea someone had. And as long as it works for this film and I'm doing it for a reason that is self-earned by the film, it's not stealing. You're you're not saying like, wow, that guy's not creative because he did this shot that's similar to what Kubrick did in The Shining. You know, it's it's more like, oh, that shot's kind of like this shot in The Shining. He I must feel like, like a lot of what creativity too is just being able to pull from different sources exactly. and put them together. Yeah, as long as you're works. making a unique and interesting film, you can totally take pieces from other things. Um, yeah, the, the, at the end of the day, you want it to be its own thing, though. That's that's the main thing. Is so the more you watch, the more you discover about yourself and what you like, the more you can kind of own that and figure out. Okay, like let's say that you love, um, let's say that you love uh, Star Wars, the original Star Wars film, <clears throat> um, but you think that Han Solo is an asshole, right? Actually, let's change this up. Let's say that you love Han Solo. And Han Solo is like your favorite character and Luke bores you, right? Start with what would Star Wars be like if Han Solo was the hero then? If Luke was not a part of the story and Han Solo was there. His personality, his type of character, okay? Now, maybe uh, the Force is also kind of weird, like the fact that there's magic in this world. Maybe I don't want magic, so let's cut out the Force. What happens to the story then? What is it really about? Maybe it's just about like the Rebellion and the Empire, okay? So... You have that, take out the spaceship, set it in medieval. Pretty soon, like, you're going to have a totally different story. Maybe it was once just Star Wars with Han Solo instead of Luke. But if you keep doing that, if you keep stripping away elements that you think could be improved upon, and you say, I could do better with this, maybe. You know, this, this, all this is great, but this could be better. Then you look at that and you're saying, oh, now that this piece is here, this piece doesn't quite work anymore. So let's fix that. Let's take this away and put it. And it's it's this thing of like, um, by the end, you started with with you know with a structure, and you've taken apart piece by piece by piece until it's a totally new structure. Dude, it sounds just like do you know that paradox about the boat? Yeah, 
it sounds exactly just like, like the boat. A hundred percent. So yeah, that's 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 an easy way to get started. If you're thinking like I don't really have any ideas, take an idea you already have and literally start by just straight up stealing the entire story. But don't stop there. Don't just make yeah. that. You know, figure out ways to change the story and to say, all right, I'm going to make it my way. And by the end, hopefully, there will be elements, sure. There, people can be like, oh, this is kind of like Star Wars. But they'll have no idea that it literally oh, is Star Wars, Wars <laughs> until you changed it. Um, yeah. yeah. No, that's it. I never even thought of that idea. I like that. I also like what you said earlier about how you should, like, you can make something with your iPhone, right? And then show someone who has a better camera. And then yeah. possibly, if they get them interested, you can use the camera. Because I feel like a lot of people will use not having the resources of, like, yeah. quality equipment as an... I don't know, maybe an excuse to not film something. Yeah. But I feel like the way to get that equipment is to, is to do, do something. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And it, it's also in terms of your own improvement. If you're, if you're not very experienced, you can't sit around saying like, oh, I can't make this movie because I have no experience. Because then you'll just you'll never, just never make, make, it. make it. Yeah. Either. So get the experience then. If, and, and there's absolutely a thing of like, if there's a movie you want to make – but you don't have the experience yet, but you know, like, all, all I really need to do is do, like, two two other things first. Then do those two other things. That's fine. Yeah. As long as you have, like, a game plan. You have a roadmap, you know, on how to get there. So that that has been a thing for me in the past. And, and especially in the future, I have, like, you know, a, a, in a perfect world, the features I want to do before I'm 50. And there's, like, I think seven or eight of them. So I have each one planned out. I know when I'm going to make them, at what point in my life. Um, and they all depend upon the success of the previous one in terms of, like, was I able to make it? Was I able to get the budget for that? Could I push for a slightly bigger budget on this one? Because it would be impossible for me to go and, um, spoiler alert, I want to make a Beowulf movie someday. Um, so uh, the, but the Beowulf movie would be, literally impossible for me to make right now it would just be you know i, I want to film in iceland i want crazy <laughs> budget for my for the monsters for the dragon and yeah. if i want actual actors i want teams of viking extras it, it would be a massive massive movie so the question is not it doesn't become oh i can't make beowulf it's what do i have to make first so that i can make beowulf you know I see so then you lay it out and you're like, okay, life almost gone. Was something I could make now? Um, what has life almost gone prepped me to make next? And that's where I'm looking at like what the scripts I'm writing at right now are. Is these are things that are harder and they require a little more budget. They require a little more experience, a little more time. But I have that now. After making Life Almost Gone, I couldn't have made this film before I made Life Almost Gone, but I've made it now, so now I can. So it's kind of like an RPG game where you... Yeah. Use the resources you have to make something, and then once you make that, you can get you more resources. It. Yes, exactly, exactly. The leveling up and getting new—that's awesome, a hundred percent. So, and that doesn't have to be with features; it can be with shorts. You could start with like a one-minute film where the only character is you, and you are the t- director of photography. You are the director. You're the editor. You're the actor. You're when your credits single. is just all—it's just day. you, exactly. <laughs> so you can do that, and you can make as long as it's a fun little story that people might be interested in. Make it. And show it to people and say, hey, I'd love to make something else but have, like, a couple more people. Are you interested? And then you get them on board. And then you make a movie with three people. Well, I also know you – you told me one of the ways you also get people to help you with films is you've, like, helped on a lot of other people's films, yes. right? Yeah. There's a, especially when you're in the low-budget kind of 
you know, the time in which no one's paying each other, it, it becomes much more um, of a kind of a, a bartering system of like, <laughs> you, there's no money, so I'll trade my labor for your labor. So you work on my film and then I'll work on yours. And, and no one says that, you know, it's, 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 it's a, a dick move to be yeah. like, well, you haven't been on one of my projects yet, so I'm not going to work on one of you. you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just kind of a thing of like, you keep in the back of your head, like you were a great person to work with on my film. So then next time they ask you for help on yours, of course, you're just going to be like, yeah, yeah, sure. And you could, it's happened with me where like, you know, you'll work on a person's set 15 times and they'll only work on your set once, but that's just because of like the opportunities that have come up, you know? Yeah. So yeah, there, there've been a bunch of people that I've helped out with on a bunch of projects who have just like not been available for most of my, but they'll come, they'll come on like one that they are and it'll be a super good time. And I'm like, you're trying your best. What, yeah. you know, so it's, it's, a, it's all good. And, and it's also a benefit to you because you're learning other stuff while you're on these projects definitely. that you could apply. And the more you learn about the other parts of the process, the better, because you, as a director, you should know as much as possible about every single person's job because, um, <laughs> it, it's, it's one of those things where if you're, in a position of power and you don't understand what your crew is going through, then you don't really deserve to be in charge of them because they're, they're going through a struggle that you can't understand. So you, you need to understand that you don't have to be an expert in anything by any means um, other than directing. But if you get the job of the lighting person and they're obviously way better than you, but you, you get the struggles, you get the complications of that then it helps you in your communication with that life person because you're like, I know what you're doing here. Uh, can we get a little bit more of this? And you know whether or not it's feasible. You know whether or not how hard it is. You know if, if you're asking a big thing of them or a small thing of them. And you can also find things that you really enjoy that you didn't know you you liked. I, I didn't know I liked doing sound until it just became a thing where on a ton of sets I was seeing that like there's no sound people. You know, there's like... 40, 50 people who run camera in Vegas and I've only met like six or seven sound people. So I was like, oh, there's like no sound people? Okay, I'll learn just by ne- just yeah. out of necessity. People need sound stuff. And I found that it was super fun. I really loved it. And now, and now it's I, helping you for your project. Yes, and, and I love, and now I like just do sound design for other people's projects. That's like a job I have on, like I'll, I'll actively look for sound design projects with no expectation that they'll ever help me out on my thing um so yeah it's it's and it's good to have different paths in this career because it's such a flighty career it's such a hard thing to actually get success in that you it's setting yourself on like this is my one path to success this is my one goal if i don't make it as an actor i'm fucked yeah. <laughs> you know that's bad that's a that's pretty rough so if you can say, all right, I want to be an actor, but I also know how to AD. I also know how to script supervise, etc. It means you're going to get a lot more jobs and you're going to be working more. You're going to be making money more often. And more experience. More experience, exactly. And you could be meeting people while you're ADing oh, yeah. and saying, hey, by the way, I'm also an actor. Like, Let's say you're the AD on a set and the DP is also sometimes a, a director, right? DP... Currently is just a DP, but on his next project, he's going to be the director and he's looking for actors. You're currently the AD, but you're also an actor. You guys get talking, you're you're hitting it off, you're having a good time. Yeah, network, promote yourself. Maybe you'll be an actor in his film. Yeah. 
So yeah, yeah, I definitely like the idea of kind of like diversifying your options at first while still having like the main goal. Yeah, yeah. Find out what you're good at, um, and the more things you try, the more things, the more of a success rate you'll have. Because <laughs> there's definitely going to be stuff that you're not good at. I tried camera, and I'm like, nope, I have no idea how to work <laughs> any of this stuff. Um, so I, I respect the hell out of my camera people, and uh, I don't try it myself, but I found sound did work for me, and ADing did work for me. But yeah, you don't know until you try. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have a lot of other questions I'd like to ask you, but we are running low on time, so okay. I just have one more. This is a question I'm basically I'm trying. There's a podcast I watch called Lex Friedman, and mm-hmm. at the end of each podcast, he asks the same two questions. Okay. And I kind of like how you get to see just different people's perspectives on the same question. Yeah. So I guess I'm doing, I'm tributing, you know, I'm Sounds taking good. the idea about using the same questions. I have my own. But basically the question is, what is something that you've learned in your life that has impacted your life in a significant way? <clears throat> oh, man. Let me think. I mean, so many things. I think the, the thing that's coming to me right now is that I'm trying to think of a good way to good way to phrase it. You can cut out all this. <laughs> um, oh, I like the thinking. It means you really want to answer well. Appreciate the it. biggest thing is that it, it kind of comes into stories and just storytelling in general, in whatever way you do it. Stories are older than any other career really you know there were not engineers there were not architects there were not um accountants in the stone age but there were storytellers you know drawing cave paintings stories have been with us since the beginning they will be with us until the end and every person has stories inside them and and ways of telling them and the biggest thing is just to, to, to remember that, that, that you have a story to tell and that you should tell it. And like, no matter what it is, no matter what medium it is, um, no matter how much budget, like we were saying, you have, um, there are ways to tell your story and people care. People will listen. Maybe not everybody, but enough people that it's worth, it's worth doing. So, um, Get up and do it. It doesn't matter what your resources are. It doesn't matter what your budget is. It doesn't matter how you do it. Just find a way to tell the stories that mean something to you. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful place to end up. Thank Thank you you for being on, Axel. Thank you, Strad. I've enjoyed it.